Droning On podcast recently hit 100 episodes, and to celebrate, we've put together a collaborative album featuring 26 tracks from guests who have been on the show over its first 100 episodes, samples of which you're hearing right now in the background. The album is a fundraising project to help the Peace Through Music International charity. In episode 82, Droning On's guest was Liz Shropshire. She's the founder of Peace Through Music International. They help war-impacted kids learn music all over the world, chiefly using penny whistles. All the money from album sales goes to Peace Through Music International to help them get more music to more kids all over the world. What's more, several artists, makers, instructors, and the like have come together to help with the fundraising. Until St. Patrick's Day, every album purchase gets the purchaser entered into a prize drawing. On St. Patrick's Day, we'll announce the winners. The prizes include an MK2 Stealth Practice Chanter with Torpedo Case from Maverick, a Kelpie Low D Whistle from MK Whistles, multiple generation whistles in several keys, including several Elf Song Great Highland Bagpipe Fingering style whistles and a Tabor Pipe, online Balron instruction from Blaine Chastain, gift cards for bagpipeswag.com, and more. So go get a great album of excellent music, do some good in the world, and try your luck at winning some amazing prizes all at the same time. The album is called Pipes for Peace and can be found on bandcamp.com. If you have any trouble finding it, links to the album are currently plastered all over the social media accounts for the Droning On podcast. Thanks very much and have a lovely day. Hi friends, today I'm bringing you a conversation that I had with um, Liz. She's the founder and head honcho over at uh, Peace Through Music International. Um, it's a really cool charity that helps kids and, and grown-ups as well. There's a lot of kid focus there, but uh, helps people in refugee camps, um, war-torn countries, uh, difficult situations all over the world. Um, a lot of focus on local folk music traditions, and the one of their main instruments of choice for teaching uh, these people to play music is penny whistles. And y'all know if you've tuned into the show before that I'm a big advocate of every piper being a whistler as well. And uh, shoot you drummers as well. We should all be playing whistles. Uh, there's just no reason why not, says I. So anyway, uh, hopefully that's not too tenuous a, a connection for me to have justified bringing Liz on the show. I, I sure enjoyed talking to her. Um, I think it's, I enjoyed the conversation, but I also want to give you a quick heads up. You know, Liz has been doing this for decades and has spent a lot of years in war-torn countries, in war zones, in refugee camps. As such, some of the things that come up in our conversation are kind of heavy and dark, including death in various forms, be it just through war, executions, all kinds of stuff like that, um, some rape as well. And so, you know, we, we don't dwell on these themes. They're not the main focus of the conversation, but they do come up. And so just, just a heads up, if that's something you don't want to hear, you know, hop over to the next episode or check out the back catalog for some great stuff. But um, Liz is a really cool person. It was really fun to talk to her. And I, I, I hope that this is enjoyable to listen to and you come away feeling inspired and wanting to do some good. And if you do want to do some good, you need somewhere for that do good energy to land. The Peace Through Music International organization seems like a great one. They are right now, their kind of pressing need right now is for a group of uh, Ukrainian refugees that they're teaching music to in Poland. And so there will be links in the show notes where you can help in general, how you can help with this current, uh, you know, sort of current, most most recent urgent push of, for, for, for a need. Um, and uh, shoot, here's hoping that in future there might be fun ways to collaborate with the, with the organization as well. Anyway, I'll get out of the way. Enjoy the conversation and have a great week. And thanks again for listening and bye-bye. 
so I'm, Yes, like, but it is my favorite topic. So, so you don't okay. mind talking about it some more, huh? <laughs> no, not at all. This is like asking any mother if they'll tell you about their baby, right? Like, I guess <laughs> exactly. I'd be willing to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so like, I want to be aware of that, but also like, I want to, um, you know, I want to know everything. So even though you've probably said it yeah. a million times before, you know, um, also, are you, no, are you no. feeling okay? Because I don't want you to feel rushed into doing this either. Um um, I'm not feeling great, but mm. I feel okay. And there's a slight chance I might have to leave in the middle and come back. Understandable, um, Liz. Anything I... you need. Okay, thank you. The... <laughs> Hopefully, that's not going to happen. Yeah, the, the the nice thing here is like it's not live in any way, so I can edit stuff later. I can cut out a silence, you know, anything. And great. it's also not like I'm very happy. My, my own... My own um, possibly severe case of ADHD or something makes it so that um like i i'm proud of myself for having the foresight to set this podcast up as a bi-weekly thing wait mm-hmm. is that the right word every other week i don't i never know if that means it's supposed to be twice a week or every right, other week. yeah whatever it is every other week and so that means there's also not a big rush like i've got um we've got weeks of material already backed up ready to go so okay if we needed to pause halfway and meet another day to finish too just anything that makes you comfortable is totally fine Liz so no pressure oh thank you so much I really sure. appreciate it absolutely um and I so, love what you're doing by the way oh you're well hey your website come on. <laughs> really cool and um and I listened to a couple of the bands wow I mean gosh you're just it's really neat what you're doing bringing people together well I love what you're doing Liz so so let's well there uh, we go there we go um so we are talking like <laughs> mostly to a bagpiping audience and that might be in part like most of the interviews I do are with bagpipers or adjacent musicians, drummers, etc. that yes. to play along with bagpipes. And so this is a little bit out of the norm, but the connection that I feel like is perfectly fair to make is the penny whistles because yes. uh, a lot of pipers also play whistle and those who don't, I'm, yes. I'm a constant advocate that they should. I think all pipers should be playing yeah. whistles. So let me just say that one more time. All pipers should play whistles. So there's our connection. And from there, Is Liz, the fingering the same? I've wondered about that. It's close enough. It's not quite okay. the same, um, but it's, it's close enough that it's very intuitive to kind of shift from, yes. from the one to the other. Um, and I find penny whistle to be completely intuitive. That's one of the reasons yeah. I love teaching it. Mm-hmm. As you go up in the scale, your fingers go up. And then as you go down in the scale, your fingers go down. Yeah, it's funny. Like my, my oldest son, I've been teaching bagpipes to him and just recently gave him his first whistle. And I wanted to do it in that order uh-huh. because the... Oh, you can take that list. No problem. No, I am so sorry. Let me turn this whole thing hmm. off. No problem. Uh, I did not mean for that to happen. No, totally it's fine. my fault. It was an alarm. It wasn't, it oh, wasn't gotcha. my phone ringing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry about that. No, no problem either way. Um, but that I, I showed my son the whistle after showing him the bagpipe chanter precisely because the whistle, at least in my opinion, is more intuitive. The bagpipe has some closed fingering, so some fingers have to go back down as you're working your way up. Whereas the whistle is just like, it's just, it's pretty straightforward. And he was like the... The, the relief was visible in his eyes as I taught him like the next note and the next note. He's, and he was like, this is so much easier. And I was like, yeah, well, don't, <laughs> don't stop playing bagpipes. But yes, it is, isn't it? <laughs> that is funny, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, so Liz, I thought maybe if you're into it, I thought maybe um, you could take us. I was just thinking about like, how, how do we approach this? And I thought maybe you could take us back to, um, oh, what was the first crisis that 
See, I was about Kosovo. to say Bosnia. That's not right. Yeah, Kosovo. That's right. Take us back to Kosovo and maybe tell us about Kosovo and what got you into that and what happened to you there. And then maybe we move backward from there and forward from there. But let's use that as kind of like the pin where we start. Okay. Um, tell me all do about you, it. Do you want, I could talk about, about how I started it, like how I even yeah. got into Kosovo. Absolutely. I want to okay. know everything about that. The German hippies and everything. <laughs> okay, great. There's there's nothing that's like off topic. Off oh yeah, no problem, no problem. So that it won't ring again. Okay. Well, I think we're safe now. Uh, so take okay, me take great. me back to Kosovo and tell me every story that comes into your mind. Okay, um, I can be kind of wordy, so so you'll just cut out. That's that perfect. Extra stuff. No, be wordy. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So um, my degrees are in music composition. I did my undergrad at BYU, and my uh, graduate school was at. USC studying a composition for the music industry. Mm. And so I was working in the movie industry, the TV, that kind of thing, um, writing music. And it just didn't really feel right. It didn't feel quite like the, the right life to me. And I, I started teaching on the side, which I'd kind of always been doing anyway to support being able to write music. So many musicians um, do end up doing that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's a great, it's a great thing. If you're a good teacher, um, it's, I think it's just a great gift to give to the world to teach others, mm. um, even if you just can do it a little bit, you know, on the side. Uh, so anyway, so I was driving to uh, the home of one of my piano students. Um, I lived in Los Angeles, and my students lived all over the city, so um, I spent a lot of time in my car driving between students. And uh, I also taught a few celebrity families. Oh, and that's cool. One of these celebrity families, the kids were usually not there when I would show up for the mm. piano lesson. Mm. They had three kids taking piano from me. Sometimes I'd have one, sometimes two, but a lot of the time I had no students at all. And so I would talk to their live-in nanny and I would play their piano and I didn't mind at all. They paid me whether the kids were there or not. This is totally unimportant. I'm sorry. No, I but no, you, I tell me, no, I like, I like these kinds of details. It paints a, paints a picture of what okay. your life was like. So it's great. Okay, great. And it's also so, a um, fun glimpse into the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And actually the kids father uh, played bagpipe and he was teaching the kids bagpipe. Oh, really? So oh, there you go. that was one of the things that they were learning on the side, which was really fun. Yeah. So, um, as I'm, I got, I got uh, to of this. Of course, Liz, I'm was, now, I'm now running like my, my brain Rolodex of any celebrities I know of who might've been living in California, who I might know play bagpipes, you know? <laughs> but, I know. And I want to just tell you who it is, but I don't know if it should go I on the understand. podcast. Can yeah, I just I, tell I, you? I, I totally understand. Don't, don't worry about it, Liz. You carry on with I mean, story. I don't mind telling you at all. I just don't oh, think yeah. it should go tell, on the podcast. Tell me and I can, I can blank it out for sure. Yeah. So it's, do you know oh, him? Oh yes, of course. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so he's an awesome guy. Very different in person mm. than um, on TV um, and those kind of things. I, I never knew that he used such bad language when he's on TV <laughs> because in person he was so nice all never the time. Never would have thought, huh? No, it just, he's a really sweet guy. And he had three daughters, really neat kids. But the kids were involved in so many things, which was very typical mm -hmm. for, you know, children of celebrities. Yeah. And so... They had this live-in nanny who was from Europe, and I spent a lot of time talking to her, either waiting for the kids or 
well, usually we were waiting for the kids and sometimes the kids would get there before the time was up and we'd just have a shorter lesson or sometimes they wouldn't come at all and I mm. would just get to play on their piano that Elton John had had uh, <laughs> so given <cool>. them. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a really great job and I really liked these kids. Anyway, uh, the, the nanny was from Europe and as I was driving to their home that day, I was listening to NPR and they were talking about the war in Kosovo. Mm-hmm and interviewing women that were living in refugee camps in Albania and Macedonia. And what had happened to these women is that they, the Serbian armed forces, whether it was paramilitaries or police or, or actual military, had come into their villages, rounded up all the people, made the men go with them and either killed the men or, or took them off to prison and they made the women and children leave and go to another country. Mm. Um, their belongings were taken from them. Any documentation that they had, uh, home ownership, school graduation, anything like that was taken from them. And they were forced to leave and to go and to walk to another country. And as these women got to the other countries, they ended up living in refugee camps and the camps were, you know, very, very basic. They were living in tents. The weather was horrible. Um, they didn't have enough food or enough water. But the women all said that the worst thing was that they didn't know what had happened to their husbands oh, or sure, their yeah. older sons, yeah. their brothers. There was no way to find out if they were still alive or dead or where they were. And as I heard this, I actually was, was planning a backpacking trip to Europe that summer. Mm. and I was going to go backpacking in Austria and Switzerland. I had my plane ticket, and I was I had just been looking forward to this. But as I heard this story, I thought, I've always wanted to go someplace and really help, but I never could afford it. I wanted to go to India and meet Mother Teresa and help her. Uh, I wanted to get involved in so many different ways. But but because of this airplane sale, I actually had a plane ticket taking mm. me to Europe. And so I thought, this is it. This is the time for me to go and do this thing. So I um, I went to her, her home. I went to the home of this family. And when I got there, the kids weren't there. And I was talking to the nanny and, and telling her about this and that I thought I was going to go. This was in the spring of 1999. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I said, do you know where Kosovo is? I'd never even heard of the country. Yeah. So we talked about that. And uh, then I went home and looked for ways to get involved. And the group that I had been trying to volunteer with called Volunteers for Peace, um, they said, we're not working in Kosovo because it's too dangerous. But here's a group that is. It's called Balkan Sunflowers. So, uh, And they're a German-based group. And I had never heard of them, didn't know anyone who had had, had anything to do with them. So I contacted them online, and of course, this is in the early days of the internet and uh, email, so it took forever to get replies and yeah. and all of those things or to find out anything about this group, but they accepted me as a volunteer, and uh, at the time, all the refugees were still outside of Kosovo because the war was going on, but they were helping in the camps outside of Kosovo, so I thought, that's what I'm going to do, I'll go. Um, they said they were teaching children about landmines and helping the women carry water back to the camp. So that's what I thought I would do. 
Now, and then the like, next great, week, like good sorry. for the impulse and everything, Liz. But I'm just curious, like at any point during that process, of, of course they did say they're working outside of Kosovo in the camps. But at any point, did you stop and think to yourself, like, hmm, if one charitable organization tells me they're not going there because of how <laughs> dangerous it is, but here talk to this other group, like, did you ever pause and go, like, should I be rethinking this, or maybe I go in a in a few months, you know, or were you just like not even well, stopping to consider the potential danger to yourself? <laughs> I I later on after it all was set in stone and I was going that's when then it's that's okay. when it hit me that yeah. it could be <laughs> dangerous but uh, at this point I was just I was just um feeling like it was like it was just the right time and mm. the right thing to do and that I had been so blessed and so I needed to get out there and, and bless other people yeah so so I, as I went back to this piano student's home, I was talking to the live-in nanny and telling her that I was going to go and that I'd found this group. And she said, my husband and I have been talking about it all week. Now, this is the nanny, mm-hmm. not the celebrity family. Right. She said, my husband and I want to give you some money to help you pay for this. Mm. And I said, no, no, that's not what this is about. I said, I'm just going instead of going on vacation. It won't cost me anything more than that. Of course, I had no clue what it was going to cost me at the time, but <laughs> but that's what I thought. Yeah. And um, she said, no, my husband and I have been talking about it all week, and we want to go too, and we can't go. Mm. So please let us give you some money so it's as if we're going with you. I said, well, let me think about that because it's totally different than what I'd been planning. Yeah. I went home that night, and I was talking to my next-door neighbor who I'd known for years, and I said, I don't want to take money from anyone um, that's not what this is about. And she said, Liz, don't be stupid. Don't just go to go. Mm. Do what you do best and take a music program to these kids. Mm. And I should, I should add that at the same time, I was also teaching in three Catholic elementary schools. I was doing this program where you brought band, band instruments in no. and then they weren't, they didn't have enough to have a real band, but I would teach the kids privately. And so I would go once a week and teach all day in the school to any of the kids that wanted to learn piano or, or any of the band instruments. Gotcha. So I'd already been doing this for a couple of years. And of course, my private students. And of course, being a musician, you kind of end up teaching anyway. Right. Um, so I just thought about what she said. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense, a lot more sense than just going. Mm-hmm. And so my friends and I started doing fundraising. And I ended up going with about $6,000 worth of musical instruments, which back in 1999 was a lot. Um, I contacted... How did you... you, Were you unable to take clothing? Because I've got to think, that's like, what do you fill your suitcases with if if it's all taken up by the musical instruments? Like, that sounds like a lot of musical instruments to travel with. Well, this was before 9-11 and before all of the um, regulations and things on the airlines. I took Uh, uh, 12 duffel bags. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. I had had, uh, hundreds of... Actually, the the harmonicas were donated from Honer in Germany. Mm -hmm. And so they were driven down there by someone who was going that I didn't know that I just made a contact with. And then the penny whistles, though, I had to pick up at an Irish pub in Belgium. Oh, really? En route. Wow. (laughs) And so I had to go find this pub and go in and get these. It was hilarious. Everything was hilarious, but it all came together. Different companies donated different things. 
Um, my church had donated some electric keyboards that I could pick up in Albania. So I had a, a, a huge box of piano books. I had a, a box of um, drumsticks, which I learned you should never take into a war zone after a war because, you know, the kids are making weapons out of everything. They've, oh, they've yeah. seen nothing but war for most of their lives. And they've seen that the only people that have power are the ones that have the better weapons. So they were playing with real guns. There were mm. guns everywhere yeah. that had just been left behind. And they had knives. And they So anyway, when I was teaching drum, though, um, the only rule I had with those kids was that if I saw them hit another kid with a drumstick, that I would take it back. Mm. Um, and I taught for six weeks, and by the end of the six weeks, only one kid still had his drumsticks. Oh, <laughs> so after that, we switched to hand drumming, hand and drums we still do drumming, on, yeah. but it's all hand drums. <laughs> that <now>. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> no drumsticks. Lesson but, learned. But <laughs> um, yes, exactly. So um, yeah, I had a water filter. I had some clothes. I had, I had so many things. I still, I still can't believe that I was able to go with that many duffel bags. Um, yeah. And fortunately, I was going on three completely different plane tickets to get there because the cheap airline ticket that I had bought was from Seattle to Brussels. Mm. I lived in Los Angeles, so I had to get to Seattle, then get to Brussels, and then get from Brussels to Albania because they weren't allowing flights into Kosovo at the time. Mm. So so I got to, I got to Albania... Well, no, I should, I should go back before that. Yeah. So I'm gathering up everything I can, contacting all the instrument manufacturers I know of. Uh, companies were really generous. Um, I had, you know, some harmonicas from one company, some from another, some penny whistles, all that kind of thing. So, so nothing was the same, but I had, I had, I even had 30 really nice penny whistles donated yeah. um, that I had to hold on for a special class that would only have 30 kids in them. Yeah, you don't want people uh, anyway, fighting over so, stuff, right? Exactly, but, and, I, and I still do that. I still make sure that all the kids get the same thing what was, when, when I teach them. I've got to imagine that, like, at this point today, you've got, you know, like a pretty well-developed system for how the classes work yes. and stuff. But at that point, what was your pitch like when you'd called, like, Honer? Just be like, hey, I'm a, I'm a random person from california <laughs> and i want to take harmonicas to a war zone can i have some harmonica like how do you pitch that to a, a manufacturer you know? i i don't know to be honest <laughs> i i i am but and you know at the time it was it was all over the news yeah um, yeah and so and i don't think people were doing this kind of thing back then so probably, I don't really know. Probably there was some, like, I, I could imagine maybe you, you were probably not the only person touched by this desire to do something to help. So probably if you called somebody at home or whatever and said, you know that issue in Kosovo, I think I can help. Exactly. It. They would have been like, that's oh, yeah. That's exactly. Cool. Mm. That's, that's right. And I wrote a lot of letters, um, you know, and mailed them, mm. snail mail, yeah. um, to Alfred, to Honer, to to um, all the penny whistle co companies that I knew of and that I could that I had heard of, mm -hmm. harmonica companies. Um, I don't even remember where I got the drumsticks donated from hmm. uh, because we've never used them again. Right, right. But, um, but people were, companies were so generous. And, and it was really great because I was doing this in April, but I wasn't going to be able to leave until August. Mm. So I had a good bit of time to get all of these things in place. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, fortunately, uh, we did yard sales and raised 
funds as well mm-hmm. uh, because it ended up costing me so much money to get all of the bags there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I ended up getting to the country with about $125 left. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, and I just thought, okay, that's all right. This is going to be okay. Yeah. Um, I landed in Albania, and the volunteer group was called the Balkan Sunflowers, and mm-hmm. I'd never heard of them before. They were a German-based hippie group. Um, and I'd always been a hippie at heart. So I thought this is awesome. There were going to be volunteers from all over the world doing this. They were supposed to meet me at the airport because they knew how many duffel bags I had. So I arrived in Albania at the airport. I'm flying in and there are tanks and, uh, guns and all kinds of things on the runway as we Mm -hmm. fly in. I get off the plane, get my bags don't understand a word anyone's saying, yeah. and no one is there to meet me. Oh, no. I go outside, and the police are, are like, not beating back, but kind of. They're keeping the people outside of the airport back mm. um, with guns uh, so that nobody can go into this airport area. Meanwhile, I'm just looking for this, this person who's supposed to pick me up, who, of course, I've never met, but who's supposed to speak some English. Yeah. Um, he's not there. And they used the Albanian luck in Albania. I had no luck and there was no money change or ATMs or anything like that. This was a very small airport. Um, and their own country had been devastated just, well, not long, not long before this. So it was very primitive. Yeah. Oh, and luckily someone let me use their phone card because that was the only way you could use the public phones. Mm. And again, I just think about this, and I think about the amazing people that I met through this. This person I'd never met before let me use their phone card, and I called the volunteer group and reached someone, and they said, oh, yes, he's he's coming right now. He'll He'll be there in a few minutes. So I waited about three hours, I think maybe four hours. Nobody came. And finally, this little kid who'd snuck up through this police cordon had come in a couple times to talk to me. And he said, "Um, my dad drives a taxi. We can take you where you need to go. And I had the address of where I was supposed to go. So finally, after about four hours, I said, okay, let's just do that. So I called the group again and said, I'm just going to come to you. They gave me some instructions about where they were. So I get in this taxi. This sounds (laughs) terrifying, Liz. I can't. (laughs) How, How old were you at the time? I was 35, you were so 30, I was not young. But 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 still, a 35-year-old lady with 12 duffel bags of instruments, with the police, with weapons all around, tanks on the runways, and this one little kid who's like, my dad has a taxi, you want to go with us? <laughs> then you call on the I phone know. to people who you've never met and be like, where should I go? And they're like, go to this place. It just it sounds so scary. <laughs> And and it I probably was quite scared. I don't I mm. don't really remember. I probably was so overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I just uh, I just knew that I needed to keep going. Yeah. I you know I thirty five is pretty old, but I was. It's also pretty young, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think I could do it today. Mm. I think I think twenty three years ago it wasn't that that hard. But I think today, I don't know if I would have the guts to do that. I mean, I I still go into countries without speaking the language and without knowing people and things, but, but not like that. That was (laughs) pretty pretty extreme. (laughs) 
I mean, there it does seem like and of course. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Liz. I mean, what are you going to do, right? I didn't know about that there were going to be tanks and guns right, at the airport. Yeah, I yeah. thought somebody was going to meet me there. So, yeah. um, I think you know, I've had a lot of scary experiences over the last twenty-three years, and um, I remember at one point thinking, "Well, I have a choice. I can be scared." Or not, but being scared is not going to change the situation I'm in. <laughs> True enough, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that's kind of what I've what I've ended up going with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm careful. I try to be careful, but like I said, I just had no idea, you know. Yeah, there and, there, there are a lot of things in life, right? That like after you do them, you go, "If I'd known what that was going to be exactly. like, I never would have done it," right? <laughs> Exactly. So yeah. I'm quite grateful I didn't know. Yeah. And and I had you know, I had no idea that this was a hippie group. I thought it was, you know, a good organization and mm-hmm. the group that they'd been recommended by was a very organized organization. Like well organized so. and professional and all that. Yeah. Yes, yes. And 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 I have to say the Balkan Sunflowers was wonderful mm-hmm. and they're they're still wonderful. But um but they're a hippie group, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that that leads to more more of a laid back vibe, and American hippies are a little more organized. Maybe I don't know. Take American don't hippies are—that's that. funny. I don't want to say that. It's funny though. I, I like it. <laughs> like American hippies are like more uh, enterprising, perhaps, or something. Like there's some like European hippies are a lot more laid back. Right. Well, it, it's it's know? fun to think about like the the subculture of like of like the American like go get it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, et cetera, kind of thing. Yes. Just like seeping through even to our local hippies, you know, even we can't help it even <laughs> as hippies in America, but be a bit more commercially oriented, you know? <laughs> well, and it's, and it's funny, you know, uh, I go to Ashland, Oregon, my brother used to live there and, you know, it used to be hippie central yeah. and, and now all the hippies are, are older. So yeah, they're all yeah. living in million dollar homes and <laughs> driving decked out VW buses, but they're really decked out, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 really funny. But in Europe you still have a lot of people um living more of a hippie lifestyle. Yeah. And um so anyway, uh, side side uh yeah, sorry, side I feed. Get, get you back but here, yeah. no, it's okay. So um the funny thing about Albania at the time is that there were no street signs. Oh boy. They had just gone through, like I said, this awful, I don't know if you'd call it a war or a revolution, mm. but they'd gone through some really horrible experiences as a country. Um, and so things were really disorganized. Um, it Like you would go into town and I'm not exaggerating, you'd see um, 100 at least electric wires all wired into one building mm. and then going out and feeding homes and other businesses. Mm. And uh, because there just weren't the wires and people were just, that's how they got their electricity. Yeah. Um, the it, it was just crazy. But there were no street signs. There was no map. Um, no one knew where anything was. So having this address <laughs> yeah. didn't really help didn't really me help a whole much. lot. Yeah. No. And so we drove for two hours around Tirana. And the taxi driver would get out and say um, to other people, do you know where this thing is? Do you know where this thing is? Um, and finally, we went, we stopped at some place that was kind of well-known. And one of the other taxi drivers let me use his phone. And the guy that was supposed to pick me up said, I know exactly where that is. It's 10 minutes from us. I will come to you. And mm-hmm. so he came to me, got me in the bags, and we went back. 
So that was a that was a good thing. And the adventure um, hasn't even begun yet. <laughs> no, no. You're like not even there so, yet, and you've gone through all of this. No. <laughs> so I think this was a Thursday, mm. and to um, to get to Kosovo, you had to take you had to either drive or go with a, a flight with the World Food Program, mm. and they would fly food in in their cargo hold, but they would let um, aid workers go in in the seats. Mm. So I got booked on a flight with, with another guy that was, was going to go with the same volunteer group um, to go in the, in the seats, but we were only allowed to take one bag. So I had a big backpack, and uh, so I took that and left all my other bags in this house with mm the group in Albania and we'd been warned as soon as we got to the house don't leave anything anywhere we you know people come in here and steal things and here I am leaving all those my pennies. six thousand you know yeah, it was everything. all my savings all, all my credit cards everything was spent on the stuff that was in those bags yeah and I had to leave them with these people they said well we're sending a van to Kosovo it'll be there by Tuesday and so we'll drive your bags up. So don't worry about it. Just get on the plane, go up to Kosovo, get acclimated, and then we'll send the van up on Tuesday with your bags. Hmm. I said, okay. So I got on this plane. We flew into Kosovo. Uh, while we were flying in, we could see uh, houses burning. And um, it, was, it was really intense. And uh, so we landed in in. Pristina, the capital city, and we were told where the place was that we were supposed to go, and there were taxis, uh, but we were thinking neither one of us had much money. The guy that was with me was 19 years old, and he was from Holland, super neat guy named Walter, and uh, so we thought we'll just walk it because um, we don't want to spend the money on a taxi, because, mm -hmm. you know, they saw us and thought we can rip these guys off, yeah. so... We started walking, and luckily one of the other aid organizations that had been on the plane with us said, you can't walk that far, we're going to take you. So they drove us to the aid group, and so we, we got there and had sort of an orientation, and then we were driven to Jakova, the city where we were going to do our work. Mm. And Jakova was, uh, it's in southwestern Kosovo. It was the hardest hit city in Kosovo. They had more people killed raped, still missing at the time. Mm. Um, it was, it, it was homes destroyed. It was so, such a mess. And that's, that's where they sent us. And, um, we were both really glad to be sent there, yeah. but the drive there took hours. It, it was now that drive takes about an hour and a half, but it took about five hours that day because the roads were bombed and the bridges were bombed. And mm. so getting there was, was just crazy. But we finally got there, and uh, we got to meet the team there, and they were just a bunch of really neat people. I was the only American. There were uh, some from New Zealand and all over Europe, and just really neat, neat people. Um, and it was a two-bedroom house with one bathroom, and we just all slept on the floor. Um, I don't remember how many of us... As as you were meeting all these people and talking with them and stuff and like getting a view of the situation, was there any, I don't know how to put this, like um, 
uh, would you call it uh, 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 skepticism, maybe, on the parts of other volunteers who were there, or refugees, indeed, even, if you met them, or even in your own mind, looking around or looking at you, like, did anybody say, like, oh, hello, Liz, what are you here to do? And you said, I have $6,000 worth of penny whistles and harmonicas on the way. <laughs> and then being like, we're hungry. You know, like, why are you do like, was there any, any kind of, um, you know, questioning in your own mind or from others about like, why are you doing this? You know? Well, I'll tell you, I was only supposed to go for three weeks. Yeah. I ended up going for, I ended up staying for six. Mm. And, um, I had thought the same thing before mm. I went. I thought I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, um, excuse me, I'm not a nurse. Yeah. What do I have to offer these people? But when I contacted the group, they said that they were doing mostly activities for the children mm -hmm. because there was nothing for the kids to do. And there were other groups there that were rebuilding homes. There were groups that were, you know, providing food, those kind of things. I knew that that wasn't anything I could do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also knew that music had been the thing that brought so much joy to my life. Yeah. You know, when I was doing my undergrad in music, I actually thought many times about changing to be a social worker or something else because I felt like music was so selfish because every single time I practiced, I felt better. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah. every time I was around music, I would feel better. And... I thought, what am I doing, you know, doing this selfish thing? But I stayed in music, and so I just thought, I'm taking something for these kids to do. That's yeah. all I thought. Mm -hmm. And I thought, while they're playing the instrument, they'll be able to forget about the war for a few minutes, and they'll be able to own something again because everything they owned had been stolen from them. Yeah. So those were my thoughts going in. I didn't really think, I wish I was bringing in food. I wish I was bringing in clothes. Because at that point, I'd never been in a war zone. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, think, I don't think that really occurred to me because the group I was going with was a group that wasn't supplying those things. They, gotcha, were, they yeah. were supplying activities for the kids. Yeah. So I think that's why I, it didn't really occur to me then. Mm -hmm. um, but I will tell you something about that a little bit later, and if I don't, help me remember to I, do I that. I will, you bet, absolutely. Um, thanks. So, um, so I got there, we're in this house. Eventually there were 17 of us in this two-bedroom house mm -hmm. with one bathroom. Um, there was very little food in Kosovo. There, were, there was, um, we had a lot of rice and pasta peppers the onions i guess had been in the ground for so long because of the war that they were super strong so uh -oh. we took turns cooking but if you were cutting the onions you could i mean there was no way to not cry yeah but if you cut the peppers they were so hot that if you touched anywhere else on your body you would burn yourself oh, it was crazy it was crazy um and uh yeah, it was it was just really a crazy situation. Um, and the first day that I was there, I went to this camp, and it was a brick factory. So most of the people uh, were living in camps in the other countries, but then when they came back, they found that their homes were destroyed. Oh, yeah. So 
they couldn't move back into their homes or their villages were full of landmines. And so they couldn't go back to their village until their land, the landmines had been cleared. Mm -hmm. And so people moved into pretty much any building that was just still standing. And so the first camp that I went into was a brick factory. And there were about 350 people living in this brick factory. There were um, only three men. The rest were women and children. And these women had been traumatized like you wouldn't believe. There were women that couldn't talk. There was one woman that just rocked back and forth and cried all the time. Uh, That's, I mean, it's terrible for them, of course. I've got to imagine that's also like just a a, a terrible thing on top of other terrible things for the children too. Because like, how can you expect anybody in that kind of situation to take care of multiple other humans as well? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So the parents or the moms were all inside just helping each other if they could deal with this grief. And the teenage girls had to be inside because of the culture. So they were in with with the women. And and there had been so many rapes in this war. Um, Most of them were gang rapes. Um, No one knows exactly how many because most women didn't talk about it um, afterwards. But uh, it was was just horrific. And... um, and they had seen so much and had so many people killed right in front of them. So the women were dealing with this incredible trauma. And meanwhile, the kids were just running crazy outside. They, nobody, was, nobody was telling them, do, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, like I said, there were guns everywhere, so they were playing with real guns. They were reenacting executions. Oh, uh, there was goodness. a little boy who would put a real gun to his little sister's head and say, bang, bang. And then she would pretend to fall down. Because these are things that these kids have seen. Yep. And then he would pretend to shoot her again. And then she would fall down again. Yeah. It was, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, The kids made pretend guns. It, It was, it was just horrible. And they were fighting also. They were, because again, these kids, um, anyone under 10 had not known anything but this war and having no rights because the Albanians had had all their rights stripped away from them. So unless you lived in a, in a city, you didn't even get to go to school for 10 years. Man. A lot of the families lived in the mountains in hiding for years before they even had to leave the country and then, and then ended up in these camps back in their own country. So these kids hadn't had anything even approximating uh, what we would call a normal childhood it's not like they knew a world outside of a war zone like it's not like they could hold exactly. on to memories of something else that's just this is <laughs> that's uh, that's amazing and i mean in a terrible that way you know just their reality yeah. yeah 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 so i'd been warned not to go in and expect the kids to sit down and let me teach them a music lesson oh geez yeah so i hadn't I... even thought of that like <laughs> if they have no idea what a classroom is supposed to look like you know so like you can be like gather around i'm a teacher like what the heck exactly. is that? exactly everybody sit down now yeah. sit up straight so uh so i took a volleyball and the first day um as soon as i got to the camp the kids all you know surrounded me and so um i started playing games with the volleyball with them and then they would start fighting so I would grab the volleyball and say, stop fighting, or I'm going to take my ball and go home. Mm. Of course, I spoke English, and they spoke Albanian. They had no idea what I was saying. Yeah. Then we'd play for about 10 more minutes. They'd start fighting. I'd grab the ball, say the same thing. 10 more minutes, they'd start fighting. Finally, I did this thing where I would 
touch one of the boy's shoulders nicely and I'd say, touch, nice, no fight. And then they started laughing. Mm. So then after that, that became the big joke. Lisa, touch, no this, you know, <laughs> fighting with the hands. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway, so we did this for about an hour, hour and a half. And, and then um, I said, okay, I'm going to go home. I'll come back tomorrow, see if we can go a little longer without you fighting. Yeah. And as I went to leave, one of the women ran out and grabbed my hand and took me on a tour of the camp. I think that's what she was doing. Again, mm. we didn't understand each other. She showed me the three toilets that they had for the 350 people. Oh, my people. goodness. I thought it was crazy that you had the... 17 to 1 in your, in I know. your little house. But... We were in luxury compared yeah, to how they goodness. were living. Yes. Um, they had one spigot of water for, for 350 the whole camp? people. Yep. Jeez. And uh, later they got two spigots. <sighs> but at this time they had... They never probably, got more than three toilets. Probably a big day, big day in the camp, and yeah. doubled their water spigots. And the three toilets were just were just porta potties. Mm. Um, it was over a hundred degrees, uh, so you can imagine how awful those became yeah. over the years. Anyway, so she took me back to her room in this factory, and all the women had gathered in this room watching me wondering what on earth is this crazy woman doing out there with our kids yeah, at a ball? Yeah. And they wanted to meet me. And so I went back and I met the woman. And luckily there was an 18-year-old girl who um, was a widow already. Mm -hmm. And she spoke some English. She had taught herself to speak English by watching TV. Super, super smart girl. She'd only been able to go to school through the eighth grade, but she spoke English. So through her, I got to know the women and they told me about their lives even before the war. You know, one of the big sayings was, it is not easy to be a woman in Kosovo hmm. because it was a hard, hard thing. And so they were in these rooms, there were no um, glass windows or screens or anything. So they hung blankets, wool blankets to try to keep the flies out. But I've never seen flies. I've never, I've never seen flies like I saw in Kosovo those mm. first couple of years. Yeah. Um, like a baby where you can't see the skin for the flies. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, I've, I still have never seen anything as bad as it was right then. Mm. Anyway, so these women, they kind of adopted me. They became my Kosovo family. And I used to actually sleep at the camp one to two nights a week. Um, did Just you to try like, to share their experience with them. Do you feel like that was important to them, like a show of solidarity in a way? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It it really was, and it was it was wonderful to me that they wanted me to do that. Yeah, um, I, I gotta imagine that. Like, there's. I mean, I I, I I say I gotta imagine. I don't think I really can imagine, like, fathom of what this experience would be like for these people. You know. But if, if in my attempts to imagine, I've got to think that there's some element of feeling, perhaps. I don't know, something that's not pleasant about having even those who are bringing aid or helping, they kind of come, drop the aid, and get to go back to their nicer yes. homes and lives, you know, and you're left yes. alone again, you know, and so to have somebody stay with you in your place where you're, you know, in your space there, I've, I'd imagine, you know, like I say, I can't really imagine, but I'd imagine that would be special. Well, and, and I didn't want them to ever feel like I thought I was any better than them. Right, yeah. And I really wanted them to know how much I loved them. Mm -hmm. So 
I went to that camp every day of the week. I went in my spare time. I, I was just with those women as much as I could. And some of the women there are still my best friends, mm-hmm. um, which was really fun. Uh, anyway, so as I, as I would go and play with the ball with the kids and then, um, and then hang out with the women, the teenage girls, I noticed they just had nothing to do. So I started my first class with the teenage girls and I used those really nice penny whistles Ah, uh, for a class with them. And is that where the the teaching started was with those girls? Like, like I'm imagining that you were playing with the volleyball while you kind of waited for the whistles to arrive and stuff like that. And then stuff kind of gets yes yeah. oh yeah that's a whole nother story i need to tell you about that <laughs> yeah. um so actually i think i had those whistles with me because there were only 30 of them oh, so i, I think see. i had them Let's in my in backpack back. and yeah. so that's why i was able to start that and i had some um i had a few harmonicas with me from a company in america mm. so i think i had both of those in my backpack but i didn't have very many mm-hmm. um so uh so i started this class with the older girls and then the younger girls asked me to teach them a class, and so I taught the younger girls harmonica. And then the boys started saying, Lisa, why aren't you teaching us music? You're teaching all the girls music. And I said, I can't teach you a class. I can't get you to sit down and listen to me. And they said, oh, we promise we'll be good. And I said, every day you promise me you'll be good, and every day you try to kill each other. Mm. And so I said, we just can't. We can't do it. So every day I would go to this camp, play with the boys, uh, teach the two groups of girls and hang out with the women. And then um, after a while, the boys, one day, they it took about 45 minutes to walk to this camp. And as I was nearing the camp, all the boys rushed the gate and came out to meet me. And they all did this thing where they took their left hand and cupped it, took their right hand and put it next to the edge of their eye, mm. and then um, pretended to have a tear coming out of their eye, and then they would take it with their hand and put it into their other eye as if they were crying and collecting their teardrops. And then they gave me their teardrops. Mm. And I said, okay, I, I will teach you, but you must promise me that you won't talk while I'm talking, you'll practice, and you won't fight. So we started class with the boys. That, and they and- ended up, what? Go ahead. Uh, just, just that, that those three, those little instructions are difficult even for my own kids to hold on to. And so I'm just imagining <laughs> how hard it would be for these kids, you know, to follow those. Well, I had to have a little, had to have a little leeway with them. But those sure. were the rules. Yeah. And those boys ended up becoming the best class I have ever taught in my entire life. Mm. They were amazing. Not only did they come every single day, every single boy. But if one of them started to talk if I, while I was teaching, the other boys would physically jump on him. <laughs> so I wouldn't stop class and stop it teaching. Wouldn't. And they kept their harmonicas with them all the time. And if I heard harmonica when I was in town, it was always one of those boys. Yeah. They'd be walking down the street um, playing their harmonicas. And it got so that this camp that had been this place full of sadness and despair became this place full of life mm-hmm. and and it wasn't beautiful music our penny whistles were in the key of d our harmonicas were in the key of c that's exactly so the what kids i was gonna playing ask them all at the same time and you know the sounds that you can make with a penny whistle yeah. you know <laughs> that you can't teach a child penny whistle without having those sounds come out yeah um 
Luckily, the boys were on the harmonica. That was a really good thing. Otherwise, no one would have ever slept in the yeah. camp. <laughs> that was really, maybe that was but, just by like, by luck. But if, you, if you'd been able to plan it out, that was a really good idea. <laughs> keep the, yes. the wilder ones on the harmonica. Keep, exactly. <laughs> and the mothers in the camp were so grateful because now they really didn't need to worry about their kids as much. The kids had class six days a week. Mm. They had homework every day. They had something to do that was productive, and it really helped helped these mothers. You know. And uh, well, meanwhile, go ahead. This is like this doesn't really matter, Liz. Uh, your story matters, but I'm just thinking like in the very small ways that I can relate to the experience these kids were having. That like I I have such a wealth of musical instruments sitting around me right here where I'm sitting right now. But it has occurred to me before, like speaking of penny whistles, like at this point I have dozens of penny whistles, but I still have the very first one that I ever got. And like the, the, it's discolored where my fingers went, you know, just cause I played it yes. so much and it was so precious to me. And it's like, I have thought before, like how my current dozens of penny whistles really don't bring me the same kind of like, I loved that penny whistle when it was the only one I had, you know? Yes. And I've got to think, like, exactly what you mean. like you mentioned for these kids where everything they ever could have had has been taken away from them. Like if this is not only their only harmonica, it's also like their only possession really that's really theirs, yes. you know? And that they can take it with them. It slides in their pocket. It's probably like shiny. Like there's just, I've got to imagine mm -hmm. that's like really, really, really precious for each one of them. Oh, and for we always make sure that we get top quality instruments we've mm. had to we've had to change a few times you know when when the quality went down yeah um because i we teach these kids how to take care of them and we tell them if you take care of this instrument it will last yeah and for most of the kids in our programs all over the world their this instrument is the greatest thing the nicest thing they've ever owned in their life yeah and you should see the way they treat them it's just amazing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I interrupted you there. Sorry, I didn't mean that. That's break okay. The flow I was just going to say so. So while I was um, teaching in the camp, in the very early days when I was just playing volleyball uh, with the kids, um, the the Balkan sunflowers were doing programs in this one school that hadn't been destroyed, hmm. and so all the kids that weren't living in the camps, they were living either in their backyard in tents or like ten families to a home. While they rebuilt their homes, oh, sure. um, they were all hanging out in this one school. Sorry, just one second. Yeah, no problem. I have asthma. I need to use my inhaler. Understood. Uh, my recent trip to Bangladesh, um, the air quality was worse than I've ever had in my life. Mm. So it's really affected me. And I never had asthma before I started doing this job. It's <laughs> definitely a hazard of... Traveling to mm. countries right after war yeah. um, or during the rebuilding phase or both. So anyway, these kids, they were, um, they were all hanging out in school, thousands of kids. Uh, they were sitting around fighting, smoking, um, and Save the Children had started a volleyball program. So I went down to just check it out, and there were about nine kids standing in a corner off by themselves. So I just went over to these nine kids and said, uh, would you guys like to have a music class? And they said, sure. So they came. That was my first Monday there. So my first Monday, I had nine kids. By Friday, I had over 90 in that class. Hmm. And I was supposed to stay for three weeks. I stayed for six. And by the end of the six weeks, I was teaching six classes a day, six days a week. 
in, between the school <laughs> and the camp. <laughs> and Man. every day, more kids came into my classes in the school. Did, the camp, it was a set population. During those six weeks, did you run all the way through your supply of instruments? Did you, or like, were oh, you able yeah. to get more I, in or anything like that? No, there was, there was, there were no phones. There was yeah. no internet. You didn't even, I, I didn't even know what was happening in the world while I was there. Yeah. Um, so if somebody flew in and they could bring a newspaper that was like a week old, everyone mm. would read it. Um, I ran out of instruments and the kids still kept coming. I had a mother come to me and say, uh, I know it's late. I know you've been doing this for a few weeks now, but will you please let my son into your class because my nephew has finally stopped screaming at night and it's only because of this class. Nothing else has worked. Um, I had so many kids that said, we just want to be here. We just want to be here. Yeah. So I still don't know how many kids came through those first classes because mm -hmm. like I said, I had... They more and more came every single day. Hmm. Um, and there was no way to, to keep track. It was crazy. And I didn't speak the language. Yeah. <laughs> within, how, how on earth were you with, teaching that many people without speaking the same language? <laughs> well, within a week, I had over 200 in every yeah. class. And here I was like standing in front of 200 kids um, and a couple parents that would come come with their kids. And, and I'd be walking back and forth in front um, clapping and jumping up and down, trying to write on this chalkboard <laughs> that had been all shot up. So it had bullet holes oh in it goodness. and it was cracked. And so you could write like part of something and then not write and then write it again and then not write. It was crazy. I the, the first like learn that really, I had, if you got really creative, you could like put oh, stems on the bullet holes and make it so they were actually notes <laughs> on the staff or something like that's that. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Work, I should have thought of that. Working with what you have, but, right? You know, I ended up teaching in a way that I'd never taught before. Oh, yeah. This whole different teaching method just came to me out of necessity. Mm -hmm. I still don't know how I did it. Um, well, I do. I know. I do know. It, it wasn't. It wasn't mine. Oh. Uh, it was from God. Because if I had taught my normal way of teaching, it we'd be done by now. But I was given this completely different way to teach. And so it was crazy. Mm -hmm. Luckily, though, and fortunately, after about a week of doing this, uh, this way of teaching, which was working, but not great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a 12-year-old girl in my class came up to me and said, Liz, I actually speak some English. Would you like me to translate for you? And I said, oh, my goodness, yes, that would be so great. <laughs> Where were you so a week ago? So she started translating for me. Exactly. <laughs> so, so once I had her, this was Erblina, once I had Erblina translating for me at the school and Zanepa translating for me at the camp, then we were able to really take off. We yeah. still taught this, this, uh, this different method because, you know, they didn't speak great English at the time, although by the end of the summer they really did. Mm. Um, but it was amazing. It was so amazing. Yeah. Um, so the six weeks ended, and the schools that I was teaching in, I'd been able, uh, one of the groups had been able to put in internet that only worked with Hotmail. So you could send emails only with Hotmail, and you had to wait forever to get a free computer to do this, and only when there was electricity, and there wasn't very much electricity. So it took forever to send an email. Mm. But I had a friend contact uh, the schools and my students and things, 
And uh, the schools finally said, look, we love what you're doing, but schools started and we're going to have to fire you if you don't get back. Oh, of course. I'd spent yeah. <laughs> all of my savings on this trip, maxed out my credit cards, and I was paying rent on my apartment in L.A. I yeah. had to get back. Um, and so I told these kids I was leaving. And now I'd seen these kids reenact executions. I'd seen, I'd seen kids attack adults. I'd seen so much violence but I had never seen those kids cry mm-hmm. until I told them I was leaving. And then they all started crying and they said, Liz, you can't take this away from us. There are groups here that are giving us food. There are groups here that are rebuilding our homes and we're so grateful for that. But this is the only thing for us. You just can't take that away from us. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I promise you I will come back. I don't know how but I promise you I'll come back. So I left all my stuff with the Balkan sunflowers, went back to LA, and I was um, speaking to uh, one of the groups that helped me raise money for this trip, and at the end of telling them about the trip, and at the end of the speech, I just said, I gotta get back to these kids, but I don't know how. And so after I finished, a woman approached me and said, Liz, if you would like to start a nonprofit, I'll be your accountant. Hmm. And then another woman, volunteered to be the lawyer and they went off and did the paperwork. Those are probably the two most important and most difficult people to find for any nonprofit. The, the, the legal advice and the, and the accounting, those are, (laughs) that's pretty awesome that they're the first two people that came forward to help. (laughs) It, I tell you, this, this program is so much bigger than me and Mm. the things that I can't do, I have been 100% helped out on all the time. Mm-hmm. It is, it's amazing to me. We got our nonprofit status in less than a month. Mm. The lawyer worked for a firm that was in LA and New York, and they, they did this for money. They, they didn't, they took us on pro bono. Mm-hmm. They had never had anyone's paperwork go through so fast. Mm-hmm. in the first time they couldn't believe it, that it went through so fast. So we got our nonprofit status. Before that, I was asking people for donations and none of it was tax deductible and still people donated anyway. People mm-hmm. are just really wonderful. Yeah, people are wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I went back to Kosovo. Yeah, how, again, how, with 12 how long did it take bags. for you to get back over there? So um, I'm kind of condensing the story a little bit. Sure, I actually... Yeah. And I don't know if you want to include this. I'll just tell you the long story. Mm-hmm. That's the short story I tell. The long story is I left in September. And while I was there, another organization contacted me and asked me if I would come back and work for them. Mm-hmm. And they promised me that I would be able to keep working with my kids, even though I'd be working for them. Mm-hmm. And so I took the job. So within a month, I was back in Kosovo. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, but once I got there, they wouldn't let me keep working with my kids. Mm. And other people, I was working in another city, but it was only 45 minutes away. So I could easily get there on the bus to go work with my kids. So I was still able to go to the camp and see people, but I wasn't able to go and teach the kids mm. I'd been teaching in the school. Um, and uh, they just, they, they were really an awful organization. We lived in a really nice house. We had private bedrooms and 
our laundry was done and our house was cleaned and we were, you know, they cooked for us. Um, and it was horrible. I felt guilty every day that I was with them. Um, and uh, they didn't trust me because I wanted to be... Okay, so one of the reasons that my first trip was so great was because I was 100% a volunteer. Mm, yeah. And when one of the kids at the camp said to me, do the Americans actually care about us? I was able to say, absolutely, they care about us. Um, and then I, I said, look at all these organizations and all that they're doing to help. And he said, yeah, but they're all getting paid to be here. He mm -hmm. said, do, do the Americans really care about us? And I said, you know what? I'm only here because over 200 Americans, some that didn't even have extra money, gave me money to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. And I've always considered our donations to be like a sacred trust because mm. of that. Anyway, so I went back with this other organization, worked for them for two months, uh, still trying to get back to my kids, and then finally realized it was never going to work. So then I went back to L.A., and that's when um, I was giving the speech. Right. Uh, and then that's when the lawyer, so this was in um, January that mm -hmm. this happened. And so in January, I get the speech. We got our lawyer and our accountant. February, no, March was when we had our nonprofit status. Mm -hmm. So then I had to raise the money and get some more instruments. And, um, and so I got back in uh, May. So it took me was the, maybe maybe June, May, June. Was that second trip any smoother since you'd made it the first time? Or was it just about the same kind of chaos to get your duffel bags and everything? Well, one thing I didn't tell you about was in my first trip, I almost died. Um, <laughs> I'm not terribly like surprised, you, Liz, honestly. <laughs> 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 I think I'd be surprised I, if you hadn't come pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never had asthma before. Yeah. And... Um, and, you know, the air was, was full of, um, I mean, the country was full of unexploded bombs. Yeah. And there's a lot of fallout from, mm. from bombs that stays in the air and stays in the area. And um, you can't avoid it if, if you're living there. And because I was living in the town that had been hit the hardest, mm. it was just everywhere. I've got to imagine and, there's also plenty of, like, demolished masonry rubble and all kinds of things that would kick oh, up everywhere. dust and stuff too. Oh yeah. Everything's yeah. destroyed. The streets, the buildings, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, everything and everything's in the air and there's no air conditioning. So you're just, you know, even if you're sleeping inside, it was very much like camping. Yeah. So you're exposed to everything all the time. Um, plus the food wasn't safe. So you'd get food poisoning a lot. So you, your immunities mm. were down a little bit anyway. Um, so what happened is I, um, I was running a meeting and I kept, uh, breathing worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And I'd never had asthma, so I didn't know what was happening. Um, this is a story that I don't think I've ever told. Uh, hey, we're getting, we're getting the exclusive. We're getting the exclusive. Yeah, uh, you're getting the exclusive. <laughs> so I'm, I'm running this meeting and I, I would speak a little bit and then I'd go, and then I'd speak a little bit, then, mm. well, it got to where I would say a few words, and then I'd have to go, 
and then a few words, and then, and like I said, I'd never had asthma, so I had no idea what was happening. And luckily, someone in the group that I was that I was working with had had asthma. She said, "Liz, something's happening. We need to get you to somebody." Mm. Uh, this was a Saturday, and um, there was no place to go. It was after the war. There was there was nothing, right? So, um, luckily, one of the members of the group knew an Ethiopian prince who was there volunteering his time as a doctor. And so they took me to his office oh and goodness. an Ethiopian I prince had... who was volunteering yes. his time as a doctor. That's pretty cool. Yes. So I sit down in this chair. He gave me a shot of prednisone into my wrist. Mm. I passed out, fell off the chair and hit my head. <laughs> oh my goodness. He told the people that had brought me that if they'd waited five more minutes, I would have been dead. Jeez. So I, I didn't want to leave because I was still, you know, working and, and felt like what I was doing was really helping these kids. Yeah. So I kept working, but I had a couple of other close calls where I had to go to the hospital and get an IV of prednisone. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> there's just so much to say. Yeah. Um, I couldn't be around cigarette smoke because I, that would trigger me and everybody was smoking, not just the Kosovars, but all the aid workers were smoking. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I would be on buses going places and everybody on the smoke on the bus would be smoking. Um, I did go to, uh, I did go to a, a regular doctor in Kosovo and they literally were look, trying to look down my throat with a candle and a mirror. Oh my goodness. Because there was no electricity. And like move back before the wax everything in the hospital had been stolen. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was crazy. So no one knew what was wrong. They and, just and knew that like, it was probably an allergic reaction. When you're, when you're hot boxing on the, on the bus and like try to roll the window down to get a breath of fresh air, you just have bomb fallout and, and construction rubble blowing <laughs> exactly. in your face instead. Just no escape. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh, that's so rough. it was crazy. And, and then, and then Liz, so, you're trying to teach people how to play wind instruments. <laughs> I know. I know. It was, it was so crazy. I didn't even have an inhaler. Yeah. Like, like I, when I think back on this, I just think. Just about put you in a panic it was to crazy. imagine it, right? My goodness. But I, by then I knew that what I was doing was really important. You know, yeah. I had seen these kids who would come into class uh, goofing off, but not, not paying attention or anything. I'd seen them within a week sitting up straight, looking at me uh, within two weeks, raising their hand, wanting to play for the whole class, mm. saying that their uncle had heard them practicing and said that they were proud of them and that no one had ever said that their whole lives. Mm. And like, this was changing these kids' lives. I could see it. Mm -hmm. And no one was offering anything like this. Um, so I just felt like it was really important. Mm -hmm. So anyway, when I got back to LA, mm -hmm. I, uh, I got some, you know, inhalers, yeah. I got an EpiPen. Um, but when it, as it got time to get back to Kosovo, I started getting really scared because I knew, I knew how close I'd come to dying. Not only the, the time when I was five minutes away, but being on a bus in the middle of nowhere and having one of these attacks. Yeah. Um, so I was really scared, but I was kind of not really admitting it to myself. Mm. So anyway, 
The day before I get on the plane to come back, I broke out in hives all over. <laughs> As I went through Switzerland, I, I stopped in, they have a, a little doctor's office in the airport. I had to go to the doctor's office in the airport with my hives because it was, it was really bad. Uh, anyway, they gave me some prednisone. That was my... That's, my, that's your uh, go-to. I'm just imagining you being like, I'm, I'm going to do this if it kills me. And all the doctors being like, it's oh, going to here pretty soon, Liz. <laughs> I still have doctors that say, you know, we could probably fix you if you stop traveling. Yeah, but you just we know you're not going to stop yeah. traveling. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I got back the second summer. And my same 12-year-old girl, um, she was 13 at that point, Herbalina, came to me and, and said, I'd like to translate for you again. And I said, well, instead of translating, why don't I teach you how to teach? Oh, and yeah. then we'll both teach and we'll be able to reach more kids. Yeah. Well, then her friends started coming to me because at this point, school hadn't started. The schools were still being rebuilt. Mm -hmm. There was absolutely nothing going on for kids to do. Yeah. Um, some groups had come into Kosovo that first summer, but nobody was there the second summer, uh, or at least not very many groups. And that's, uh, that's part of the hard thing with these kinds of aid situations, isn't it? That like, I mean, not to say anything negative about anybody who helps. Of course, helping is good. Right. But we have like a donor fatigue that seems to happen. You know, like within any, any any of us. You know, we experience this where it's like you feel good about helping, but sustained helping is really hard to do. You know? It is. It's so hard, and it's hard even for the helpers to do yeah. this sustain because it's depressing. Yeah. You know, you have to really yeah. um, fight against that hitting you. Aid workers, a, a lot of aid workers end up, you know, addicted to substances because that's the only way that they can get through or having nervous breakdowns. Um, and, and doesn't and in it Kosovo, also like it, it feels like it, it would be so satisfying, right, to like go for a summer and fix the problem and then just be like, there, it's fixed. Oh, I fixed it, you know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it and Kosovo was worse than most places mm. because all of their infrastructure had been had been stripped away for 10 years. Yeah. So all the Albanians had lost their rights. There were no there were no therapists. There were um, very few doctors. The teachers had been one of the main targets. So there were not very many oh, man. teachers left, yeah. artists, intellectuals. Um, there were no uh, working structures to work with. We didn't have police for two years. Mm. Um because the only people that were the police were the Serbs that were attacking the Albanians. Mm. So it was, it was much worse than usual. And um, I, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but I was told that there were more nervous breakdowns by uh, aid workers in Kosovo than anywhere else. And mm. I do know of two people uh, that had nervous breakdowns that I knew personally that were amazing people doing amazing work, but it was just really difficult. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but I didn't face that fortunately. Um, but it's very, it's very exciting to go into a place right after a war ends. What's hard is to, to do sustained help and to make programs that can survive you. And that's our goal always is to make programs that don't need me. I feel like that, that's that can sustain and go without us in the in the narrative arc that we're seeing unfold here. I feel like that's what is that exactly what you're what, we're at the point that we've yes. reached with these teenagers starting to say, I want to yes. help. And you saying, well, why don't you teach? Yes. And, you know, I'd only seen these big organizations that had all this money. Yeah. So I thought I started an organization. We'll get all this money. We'll hire all these people. We'll do all these things. 
but we never had money. I didn't get paid for the first 15 years of doing this. <laughs> so the money we raised just barely covered our instruments. Yeah. And uh, and my credit card stayed maxed out for 15 years. <laughs> just and, minimum uh, payments forever. <laughs> exactly. It was just crazy. Um, but I had this amazing group of teenagers. Mm. And Erblina's friends came to me and offered. They said, there's nothing to do. We'd really like to help you. And then their friends came and their friends came. And uh, so I would... Stay in Kosovo for about nine months every year. Then I'd come back to America for three months to raise money. And then I'd go back. And I did that for four years, five years. And then um, usually I would leave and we'd have like 800 students at one location. And then I'd come back and there'd be like 20. Because, mm. you know, it's hard for teenagers to keep it going. Yeah, they, they, would, they would do a great job, but it was hard. Yeah. Um, and then we got this 19-year-old. This, um, that volunteered to help us. His name's Burham. And Burham was amazing because he was older and he was someone that everybody could look up to. Mm -hmm. And so I started working more closely with him. And up till now, it had all been teenagers. And these teenagers were amazing. They were yeah. sending me reports. They were writing lesson plans. They were so phenomenal, but they really needed one person in charge. And that's why it worked so well when I was there, but not so well when I would leave. Like a, um, a, a coordinator, if you will. They, like they yes, could do the direct exactly. teaching someone there to, yeah. Yes. Sense. And a coordinator that wasn't going to school with them, you know, or, uh, yeah. and uh, their own right. age, right? Yeah. So it, it really made a difference. So when once Burham joined, I left and we had about 800 kids and I came back and we had like 1500. Oh, um, so it about doubled instead so, of going down, huh? <laughs> yeah. And once that happened, I said, okay, now they don't need me. I can go to another country. Now, let me, let me go back though. Now, what, but about three you, you years. Go ahead and go back, Liz, but I just want to pause you there for a minute and just point out how maybe insane that is. That, like, how many other people would have gone, okay, they don't need me. I can go back to my normal life finally, right? <laughs> Instead, you went, okay, they don't need me. I'm going to go do this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but you the, can leave that reason, in the air. Go on back. Yeah. The reason for that is because about four years in, all the other organizations had gone. Yeah. And it was getting harder and harder to get money for the program. And I started thinking, okay, maybe, maybe we've done as much as we can do here. Maybe it's time to wrap up. Yeah. And one of the, one of the fathers came to me. And said, Liz, you can't leave now. He said, all the other organizations have left. He said, but I just attended a trauma meeting. Mm -hmm. I don't know who it was for. I think it must have been for parents or people that were, because they didn't have social workers. They didn't have anyone in those jobs. So they were trying to train people and recruit people. Mm -hmm. So I think it was one of those meetings that he was in. He said, and we were told that the trauma in our children has not even shown up yet. He said, we were told that until the children feel safe, they can't even show their trauma. So all these organizations are gone, and our kids aren't even going to show their trauma for another year or two. Yeah. Mm. He said, you can't go. And I learned so much through that because it's really true. When the kids are still living in that um, fear and anger and... Um, Trauma, you know, everything's still destroyed around them. Their parents are still, uh, if they're lucky enough to have two parents, um, are still dealing with trying to make life livable again. 
uh, and dealing with their own trauma, it's not, it's not a normal life. Yeah. Um, it takes years for these kids to feel safe. And until they feel safe, they can't actually let go. That's interesting. And let the it, trauma come it, out. It brings to my mind things that I've read about um, soldiers returning from World War I in England. And this idea that like years and years after the war, uh, and I don't know if this is hyperbole or literal, right? But um, that like the streets of London were filled with quietly walking men at 2 a.m. kind of thing, right? That like yeah. it's the soldiers, of course, went through a lot during the war, but it was after they got home to their families and to their houses and things quieted down that then the psychological stuff started to happen. N not to say it's not it's psychologically totally taxing to be in the moment either, of course, right? But just that the effects no, are long-lasting but, but afterwards. You're exactly right. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Vietnam War, but after the Vietnam War, it was very much like that. Mm. Um, so many, so many traumatized men. I mean, and now we see it so much. And... Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's part of the challenge, though, isn't it? Like, I, I'd, I'd imagine that, like, in those in that on the very first trip, calling the contacts with these manufacturers and donors and stuff like that, it's fresh and it's in the news and it's on everybody's mind, and so it's probably a lot easier yes. to raise funds. But like you say, four years later, I can I'm not trying to judge anybody. I can imagine feeling this way myself. If somebody came to me and said, you know, four years later, hey, I'm trying to help these these kids over here in this war-torn country, I'd be like, that's old news. You know, we have new tragedies. You know, I'm thinking about the new thing. I'm going to go scrub oil off of pelicans. You know, like I've got a new thing on my exactly. mind. Exactly. And so it's yeah, be much, Yeah, because it's harder. not like people don't care. It's that there are other disasters yeah. to get involved with. And, and I never could be upset about that because it's not that people weren't helping. It's just that they were helping somewhere else. Yeah. And we all need to help where we can. But it did. It made it so much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, when the recession hit, I didn't know, I didn't know if we'd survive. And the fact that we survived, that was amazing. You know, mm. we have, we have the most amazing donors and I get checks for like $12 and 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And when I get those kind of checks, I just think this is amazing. This is somebody that is either giving to multiple organizations and has, you know, $50 to donate. So they mm -hmm. have to figure out, to you know, what up. they can do or, that's all they have left over. Yeah. It's twelve dollars and fifty cents to donate to someone. But I'd imagine um, then that in your hands you're like, Well, that's two whistles and you can think of two kids who you've helped in the past, oh, like that's worth it. You know, that's that makes a oh, difference. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So yes, yes. Give me twelve fifty and I'll I'll make it work for you. Yeah. <laughs> um well for the kids anyway. Right. But yeah, I mean it's we we have so many wonderful donors and people that have really stuck with us. Um our most consistent donor who's donated since before we were we were uh, tax deductible is the family of a couple of my piano students, mm. not the celebrity family, a different family. Yeah. And they have donated enough every year that we made it through those horrible years. Mm. And some years their donation was was most of what we had oh, yeah. um, a lot of years. So people are wonderful. You know, they really, really are. And. And luckily, people were able to catch the vision of what we were doing, what we are doing. Yeah, so what... And uh, and if, if you've got a different thread to follow here, feel free to, Liz. But I'm just... Like, it feels like if we've reached this point where the, the Kosovo program was becoming self-sustaining, then what... Like, kind of reaching back to the question I posed to you that, like, you know, in the face of all of this, why why penny whistles and harmonicas? You know, like, 
what's what's the effect of the program? Like, what what is it at this point? Do you have a clearer idea of what effect this is having on on people and why it matters? I love that question. So when I when I say why does music work, the first answer is I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anyone really knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen it work in in absolutely amazing ways. You know, our goal is not to create amazing musicians. Our goal is to help these kids realize how amazing they are. They come in, a lot of them have never owned anything. They haven't had control over anything in their lives. All they've known is violence, uh, being treated like they're worth nothing Mm -hmm. their whole lives. Um, And we give them this instrument and we say, we don't care what religion you are what the color of your skin is, whether you have a dad, whether you live in a camp or a home or a tent. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is if you decide that you want to learn this instrument, we will give you everything that you need to be able to do this. And for most of our kids, that's the first time that they've ever had control over anything. Mm. And because our instruments are so easy to learn, the first time that they play it, they sound good. So then they can feel and successful, when, maybe for the first time in their exactly, lives as well. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then the next time they practice, they get better. The next time they get better. Mm. And it's not just an activity that they come to and then they leave. They take those instruments home with them. They are theirs for the rest of their lives. All of our classes, all of our instruments, all of our music, everything is free. And the only thing that it costs them is their time and they have to decide that they want to do it. And because, because these instruments are so easy, the correlation between practicing and getting better and sounding better and having more fun is direct. Yeah. 100% of the kids in our program do better in school after they join our program. Mm. It's, it's absolutely amazing. In Kosovo, only 30% will low. Let me go back. In yeah. Kosovo, only, only, what was it? Only 70% of the kids that went to primary school that, was, that went through eighth grade mm-hmm. would go on to high school. Mm-hmm. And only 30% of the kids that would graduate from high school would go on to university. Mm-hmm. The kids in our program, 100% of them went on to high school. Mm. And the kids that became youth volunteers, almost 100% of them went on to university. One of them married a girl in Switzerland, and he was living in a camp, so it was a great thing for him to be able to leave the country. Mm. But all the others, they all went to university. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. And the thing with music is that, and you know this as a musician, you don't just play music. When you are really doing music. You can't do anything else. And there are many ways to help trauma heal. And there are many ways to escape trauma. And that's, you know, substance abuse becomes a big problem, especially after a war because the mafia comes in and offers free drugs and people are dealing with huge traumas. So a lot of people end up addicted to substances because that's the only way that they know how to deal with what's going on. Mm-hmm. But what we're offering them is a way that they can deal with their trauma 
and still have control over their lives and feel better about themselves yeah. and have control. You know, the, the, the lasting effect of war on children is fear and hatred. These kids, they all come into our classes with so much fear and so much anger. Mm. And if I had lived through what they'd lived through, I would feel exactly the same way. But the thing that goes away almost immediately is the anger. It's crazy how fast the anger goes away. Hmm. These feel... kids all over the world, mm -hmm. they are the number one target for groups like ISIS and groups that are kidnapping uh, children to be child soldiers. Right. Groups that are kidnapping teenagers to uh, be human bombs. I mean, I've and heard the, because the, the saying the saying that hurt people will hurt people, right? Like it, it makes sense mm -hmm. that this would be the population to yeah. to utilize to cause more hurt. Absolutely, and our teenagers. Well, think about this: when you were a teenager, what would it have taken for you to decide that your life was more valuable as a human bomb than it was for living the rest of your life? Yeah, so I'm, you're 16 years old. That's out. And you're you're I, willing to blow yourself up because they've told you your life has no value. Yeah, it's it's, out, it's outside just, anything I can even. It wouldn't have even been able to enter my awareness. Yeah, exactly. And you would have immediately. No one would have been able to get close to you to tell you something like that. Our te the 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 longest effect, long term effect of war on teenagers, is that they feel like nothing that they do makes a difference, mm. and they learn that during the war, when they try to make a difference and, and things go wrong. Yeah. You try to help, and because of what you tried to help, your dad gets taken to a police station and tortured or worse. You, you try to help and your mom gets taken. You, you, I mean, all of these things, nothing that you do makes things better because you can't fix mm. it. And so what happens is a teenager is you stop trying and then the war ends and all of a sudden you have a, an opportunity to go to school, but you don't care about school anymore. Right. Nothing matters. Yeah, and so you. you're a prime target for these groups. But you know what happens to our teenagers? They spend their free time not only learning these instruments, but learning how to teach them. And they go through a rigorous training on how to be teachers. Mm. And then they write lesson plans and they teach the children. They follow up with the children. They, they check on the kids if they're not there. They, they care about these children. And every one of these teenagers knows that they are making a difference to these right. kids' lives. So then that shows them that there's something they can do that does matter. And they know that they're making a difference in their community, and they know they're making a difference in the world. Um, there have been studies done about what helps teenagers heal from war, and the number one thing is having them involved with healing the children. The number one. I can imagine that and also being like really effective for children. Just thinking about when I was a kid, how, how much more important the teenagers in my neighborhood were than the grownups, <laughs> you know, like they were, absolutely. they were the coolest people. And I was lucky. I had really good teenagers living on either side of me, you know, that were really great people. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were really important to me as a kid. So that, that I can imagine absolutely being double effective. When I go in, a lot of kids will come to a program because they want to meet an American or see a white person or whatever. Mm hmm but when the teenagers take over, everything changes because it doesn't matter what country you live in, color of your skin, your religion, 
your ethnicity. All over the world, teenagers are cool. Yeah, the teenagers are always cool. Teenagers are cool. (laughs) And there is something incredibly powerful to a child about a teenager who's not their relative, who's not being forced to do it, not just being nice to them, but caring about them, loving them. And the teenagers know that that is the number one most important thing for them to do is to help these kids realize how amazing they are. So I feel like I can begin to see why, like, music, of course, of course I love music for its own sake, you know, naturally. Right. Like, like anybody who happens to be listening probably does as well, right? But I, I, I feel like maybe I'm beginning to see how, like, music is a tool in this, in this case. Maybe it is in all cases for different things, but that, like, this takes... Um, the tool is utilized in order to give someone who otherwise might not have any opportunity for things like a sense of ownership because they need to take care of their instrument, et cetera, right? Yes. And like you say, mm-hmm. a sense of like me putting in effort has a direct impact on like the results. Like the time exactly. I spend on this, I see an out. And, and I can totally imagine how that would translate into, you know, somebody going on to college, right? If, they, if it gets modeled yeah. earlier on in life, then they can apply that model to so many other things for the rest of their mm-hmm. lives. Exactly. Our city had fewer suicides than anywhere else in Kosovo. I was actually asked to go speak at a medical grand round about that. Mm. Um, and I brought a bunch of the kids with me to perform. It was on the American Army base, and they would have all the doctors in Kosovo come to these meetings to talk about different subjects. And uh, so they invited me, and I didn't even know why. And it turned out it was because our city had so many fewer suicides. Mm. So I'm talking to them, and and uh, and it hit me. And I said, you know, I think our kids even do better in school for being in this program. It was the first time that it ever really occurred to me. Mm. And so I turned to the kids, and I said to them, how many of you are doing better in school now than you were before you started this program? And I thought to myself, I hope some of them are Hopefully their hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and every single one of them yeah. raised their hand. Hmm. We're over 60 kids. Um, and we saw it over and over and over again. Um, we'd ask the kids, are you doing better in school? Absolutely. Do you want to keep going in school? Absolutely. I'm not stopping. Um, this, this idea of having control, because in a war, the, the overriding theme of what children see is that the only people that have control are the ones with the weapons. Right, yeah. And so the idea is you got to be more scary than the other guy. Hmm. And what we're saying is, no, you can choose the kind of person you want to be. You hmm. don't have to let this shape you. You know, the the summer I came back after... My second summer in Kosovo, I met with Erblina first to, to see if she wanted to, you know, she, she wanted to volunteer again. And um, her penny whistle was all beat up. Yeah. I mean, it even had a dent in it. Mm-hmm. And I said, what on earth happened to your penny whistle? Did you beat your brother up with it? <laughs> and she said, no, Liz. She said, every time I was sad, I would pick up my penny whistle and it would make me feel better. And she said, I, it got to where um, if I started looking sad, my mom would say, grab your penny whistle and go outside. Yeah. Um, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about um, escapes yeah. that help trauma. Yep. The thing with music is when you're doing music, you can't do anything else. Right, yeah. So you actually get a vacation 
Like you can't think about the trauma. You get a vacation, but it's not like a vacation like drugs or alcohol because this vacation is healthy mm. and you feel good afterwards. So some, and it leads to good things. Like that, that music fills up the space where the hatred or fear were, but you can't have all of them there at once. And so it kind of pushes those out as the idea. Yes. Yeah. And you start thinking, I want to feel this way all the time. Mm, yeah. You chase so that. it's, it's, yeah, it's just amazing. And I didn't know any of this before I went to Kosovo. Right. I just, I just feel oh, so lucky that I get to do this job. And Well, and Liz, if you look back, you know these kids. like looking pre-Kosovo, before that first trip, do you see, like looking back now, do you see anything in your own childhood that was like seeds that were planted that eventually led to oh, that happening? Yes. My whole life prepared me for this. So I was a, I was a... A military brat. My dad was a, oh, an aviator you? in the Navy, flew off aircraft carriers um, during Vietnam. So my whole childhood, I was afraid he was going to mm. get killed. And um, yeah, that's a whole other story. Um, knew a lot of kids whose dads had been killed or who were missing in action. So I dealt with a lot of that um, as a child, not having any idea that that wasn't normal because, you know, everybody I knew was going through the same thing. Yeah. Um, and then living on military bases, being around tanks and other mm. things. Then uh, living in Los Angeles um, during the riots and during the Northridge oh. earthquake, right. seeing the, the freeway fall down. Um, and after the riots, I, I was... So when I was living in L.A., um, so I went to grad school at USC to study writing, writing for the movies, right? Yeah, yeah. And it cost so much money. It took me forever to pay off my, my student loans for that. Um, and then I end up in Kosovo. And it's obviously what I'm supposed to do with my life. Like within three days, I knew yeah. it was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So then I'm thinking, why did I go to USC? Why did I spend all this money yeah. um, when this is going to be my life and I'm not even going to get paid? But... I learned more in that in that grad school at USC that has helped me run this foundation than all the years of education before that. I learned how to run a business. I learned how to um, write arrangements for strange instruments. Uh, I learned yeah. how to, you know, listen to something and then write it down. I learned how, all these things that have helped me. Um, I was I taught school to emotionally disturbed kids because that was that was my first job when I oh. when I decided I couldn't make a living writing music for movies and I needed to do something else for a while. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I got all kinds of training to work with emotionally disturbed kids. Um, I did so many. Oh, and after the riots, um, I, I ran a group that that did volunteer work every week for four months hmm. um, in in the areas of LA that I'd never even been to. Uh, working side by side with groups all over the city. Um, so I just feel like my whole life I was led mm -hmm. to jobs that gave me the experiences that I needed to be able to do this. I, I, I love I love getting that kind of take from any person on the sort of like the disparate things that at any other point in their life might have not looked like they were connected and how it, at some point yes. eventually it all crashes together and suddenly it makes mm -hmm. sense. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. It uh, is. What is that? The the magic from the land of serendip, right? The the serendipity that's yes. occurring. <laughs> um, yeah. So so what about post Kosovo? Because I know from looking at your website and stuff that like that's not the only country where you've set up programs. Um, maybe tell me a little bit about what else you've done elsewhere. 
So uh, next I went to Northern Ireland and we started programs um, for Catholic and Protestant children to bring them together. So Northern Ireland is still 95% segregated. It's segregated between Catholic and Protestant. And that means if you're Catholic and you have to walk through a Protestant neighborhood to get to school, you're going to get beat up a lot. It yeah. means that you have to know which clothes to wear, which football team to support, which jewelry to wear. You have to know which side of town you're on all the time, which people you're with. There's so much uh, anxiety and fear in the kids there. Mm-hmm. And there's not much that ever brings them together, especially within their own country. Sometimes there are programs that will take them out of the country for a week, and they'll be with other kids, but nothing inside their own country. So... We started doing programs through after-school clubs, bringing the Catholic and Protestant kids together, and it was it was incredibly successful. We our very first concert. One of the fathers said, uh, "This is the first time that my daughter, who's Catholic, has ever been friends with a Protestant child, and that's something I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime." Hmm. That's a pretty natural fit um, for the penny whistle, too. Yes. Well, actually. Penny Whistle was great, but it's kind of, uh, everything's kind of divided. So Penny Whistle is considered um, a Celtic instrument, but it's also used by the, so it's... Does it have oh emo- gosh, oh, you're saying it has like, does it mess. have some political baggage there then? So it wasn't... Yes, so it's used in the parades the where people instead. are parading against the other side. And gotcha. So yeah, it's it's kind of a shame. So we ended up doing a lot more harmonica. We did <laughs> do some Penny Whistle, yeah. but a lot more harmonica. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, Northern Ireland's actually the hardest place that we ever went because they still have riots. They still have bomb scares every week. Um, I, I feel bad about and, this, Liz. And like, I hope my, I have some friends in Ireland that I hope won't be offended by my ignorance. But like, I've just, I've been under the impression that the troubles were done, you know? Like, I've I been, know everyone thinks that. I thought it was over, you know? And so it's, it's shows, it's shows not, my, my, I mean, my lack is. of awareness. Like, there aren't there aren't military on the on the street. There aren't tanks on the street. Yeah, things are a lot better than they were. So it, now it's just more under under the surface. Yeah. So um, like the my first my first year there, I went home for Christmas, came back. My favorite store had been bombed. Mm. The following fall, all the all the home repair shops got bombed, um, and they would get bombed with these these uh, devices that would start a fire. Um, they would like hide it in something, and then yeah. by the time the fire started to show, it was too hot and they couldn't put it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we still have a small program there, but it's not big. Um, when I was there physically, it was easier um, because I'm American and I'm not Catholic and I'm not Protestant. So they kind of saw me as yeah, you know, yeah. kind of a neutral. They party. could say you know that. The American ladies here, we can bring our kids together. But when I'm not there, it's a lot harder for the two communities to get together. Um, sure, if you have a Catholic person and, running, then maybe the Protestant kids don't want to come and vice versa if a Protestant person exactly. was... Exactly. Yeah, I got you. Exactly. So it's just, it's difficult, but we still have a little program going there, and we're hoping it's going to grow. Yeah, There's I think I saw... Fantastic volunteer uh, there. East Belfast, right? Over there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're hoping it'll grow. We're doing ukuleles now. Oh, right on. There you go. That's, so that can't, that can't have any school, cultural so. baggage in Ireland. It should be pretty safe. None at all. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so right that's on. really great. And then after Northern Ireland, uh, we went to Uganda when oh. the Civil War was still happening there. Um, and we did programs for uh, child soldiers and for, for kids that used to be child soldiers and for the kids who weren't child soldiers to bring them together because everyone was afraid of the child soldiers. Oh, yeah. Um, 
the child soldiers, it was absolutely horrific what happened to them. You know, they were kidnapped, forced to kill. The only way you survive being a child soldier is by killing. Mm. Uh, the lucky ones that got out, and very few got out alive, um, had trauma like you can't even believe. Oh, I'm sure. They yeah. had done despicable things. They'd been drugged a lot while they were, while they were being child soldiers. They, um, they had not lived in a normal society for a long time. So yeah. trying to learn how to be in society again was really difficult. And then when, um, when, the, when there was sort of a time when a lot of them were let, let go, we were expecting thousands, but only a few hundred actually came back. Mm. But many of them were girls with children because they'd been mm -hmm. given to commanders as rewards. And when they got out, they had no education, no way to make a living. And they English is the official language in Uganda. Oh, I didn't but, realize that. Um, yeah, but you learned it in school. They mm -hmm. don't speak it in, in the everyday life. So the kids that were soldiers and not allowed to go to school didn't know English, so they couldn't work in the regular jobs. Mm. Plus, they hadn't had an education. Plus, they'd had this horrible experience, and everyone was afraid of them. Um, and then on top of that, these girls, 15, 16, uh, were coming home with three kids. Yeah. And nobody wanted these kids. Nobody wanted these women. Mm -hmm. And the kids needed to go to school. And so we were contacted. We'd been working in a few different schools, and we were contacted by this woman who said, um, I'm taking in all of these children that were born to the child soldiers. Nobody else wants them, and everyone looks down on them. Could you bring your program to our school to try to lift these kids up? Mm. So we did. Of course we did. We were so excited. So we taught those kids. And a year later, I asked her if things had gotten better. And she said, it's amazing. She said, our kids are walking around singing and playing penny whistle. Mm. And, uh, and she, said, she said, now the other kids are jealous of them because oh. our kids know music and have an instrument. So they went from so, being like looked down upon amongst the other kids as, and now they're like the cool kids. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And all because of our beautiful, magical penny whistle. And I have to say, you know, one of the great things about Penny Whistle is that it weighs very little. Oh, yeah. And most of our countries, I have to take the instruments in physically with a suitcase. And now now you're not allowed to take 12 duffel bags. Now, right. you're, you know, you're lucky if you can take three or four. Yeah. Um, and so I have to take them all with me. And um, so harmonica is, is very heavy because we use really good harmonicas. Yeah. And, uh, and so... It's difficult to take those into the country unless it's a country that they can be shipped to. Yeah. So that's why we use exclusively penny whistle in both Uganda and in Bangladesh because I have to physically take them mm. there. I've, so I've anyway, heard... after you... What's that? Oh, I was just going to say that I've heard some cool penny whistle music out of Kenya before. Like, you might call it... Would it be right to call it, like, Kenyan music on penny whistle? You know? Um, I don't which, know. Which I know is there close Probably. by. And so... Uh, I just, yeah, I guess what, what it makes me wonder, Liz, is like with all of these programs, um, are you making a conscious effort to grab local melodies and styles and Absolutely. try to make them fit? So you're not, you're not like doing yes. like a, a cultural colonialism thing where you go out and say, you must learn, you know, <laughs> Western European music. This is the only way you yeah. can learn music. No. Right. Now we do, we do in some ways in that they learn the scale and all of those things, but we always use the local terms for the notes and, yeah. and those kind of, you know. Um, and in most of the world, the scale goes do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do. 
right. think it's only America that says Tito. So we do that or we say it in their language. Anyway, um, I was going to tell you something about yeah, this. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yes. I threw you okay. off there. So, no, no, no. It's totally okay. So one of the things that happens in a genocide is that they try to wipe out the cultural music as well. And in Kosovo, yeah. there'd been one man who'd made it his life mission to collect the Kosovar um, folk music. Mm. And he was killed and all of his music was, was burned. So this oh. whole library that the country had was destroyed. So once I got enough volunteers, I sent them out with tape recorders. And I said, I want you to go talk to your grandmothers and anyone you can. And I want you to record these songs. Yeah. And because they didn't know the songs. You know, there, there hadn't right. been time to teach their kids these folk songs. So we started bringing those songs back in. Well, then we started bringing those songs to the other countries. And then we did the same thing in Uganda. And um, we learned this one song that, that we really, really loved. And so we taught it in Kosovo, but the rhythm was really hard. So the kids in Kosovo couldn't sing it the same way that the Ugandan kids sang it. So I had to add a guitar part and drums mm. to be able to make it to make it work and some and some percussion to give it a rhythm that the kids in Kosovo could could play. Mm -hmm. So they played it and then the next time we went back to Uganda we took the recording back to the kids in Uganda. Oh, yeah. And they said, "Wow, we love it that way. We want to yeah. play it that way now." So then I started feeling bad. I'm like, "Oh no, I hope we're not going to like, you know, mess up their local music." Yeah. But of course, you know the the majority of penny whistle music comes out of the Celtic tradition. So I, everyone, when they get good on Penny Whistle, they want to play Tim Finnegan's Wake and you oh, know, sure, all yeah. of those fun songs. But we also write out uh, the local folk songs yeah. as well. And so we have Bangladeshi songs, uh, Ugandan songs. We, we have even Mari songs and uh, a lot of Kosovar songs. So it's really fun because they love learning each other's songs. They love yeah, that. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, the, kind of an interchange between... Uh, interchange, is that the right word? Exchange? An exchange of, of melodies yeah, between yeah. these groups of, of kids and stuff? That's awesome. Well, and they all know about each other. And, yeah. and, um, and so it's it's really fun. There's a Kosovar song that is everyone's favorite song on the penny whistle. And so it's just it's just really fun. Yeah. yeah I really love that. Yeah, that's um, really cool. Yeah. And so a lot of what we do a lot, the, a lot of the intention of what we do is to try to bring back as much folk music as we can. Um, well, the, I, I love the idea. Like, I really, I really love old collections of tunes, like especially where, like, you know, um, I mean, I'm only familiar with, like, Western Europe and the Appala Appalachian Mountains, basically, right? Where, like, uh -huh. a, music, a musically inclined person will go out and gather recordings and try to transcribe what they hear to preserve yes. the folk tradition. Is there any kind of, like piece through music songbook in the works that like someday we could have like here's the section from each you know each country and like uh here here are these melodies as transcribed to work on penny whistle or harmonica do you know there's been a book in works for 23 years <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but no it is it is absolutely in the works and um you know i write all the books that we use in our program on penny whistle harmonica ukulele books yeah um but I can't publish them because they contain some songs that still have a copyright on oh, them. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, and so that's why. And so one of these days, it is on my list, absolutely, to to publish a book with these songs because I think it would be great for everyone, and I would love to use it to raise money for oh, the foundation. Oh, yeah, I would buy a copy um, right away, Liz. That's. I mean, it sounds awesome. Yeah. I'd be very interested in that. So, so we are going to do it at some point. But, you know, the goal right now, I'm getting old, <laughs> 61 and so the goal is to find um 
another me or a few other me's to do the majority of the travel where you live in a country for three months and oh, have me yeah. become, because uh, right now I'm the executive director and the international program director. Yeah. But we really need someone else to become the international program director so I can focus on the foundation. And you maybe, know, and, maybe and also up. stay in a place where you can breathe properly for a little longer at a time. Yeah, huh? <laughs> as I'm getting older, it's getting more important, I have yeah. to say. Um, yeah, and so um, that's probably when it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I, I'd like to think it's going to happen sooner than that, but probably not. So, so I've given myself till I'm 65 to find someone. I'm really hoping that we find someone before that so I can, you know, I mean, I'll work with them, whoever they are, because I'm going to do this till I die. But, um, but I'd like to find some, someone and start training them. But, you know, it's hard to find people that are willing to, to work for free for a little while and then work for not very much when they do get paid and, (laughs) um, and care about this. So, Anyway, well, and I'm I, hoping. I keep hoping. I, I don't want to cut you off from telling us about more places where you've taken the program, but mm. it feels like a very natural spot for me to ask you, what can people do to help? You know, I'm looking at your website right now, so I know that I've seen that, like, you can make one-time donations or even monthly donations, and you describe on the website, yes. like, $5 a month pays for an instrument, sheet music, classroom supplies, um, and instruction for a child, essentially, is what it covers, right? right. And things like yeah. that. I know you have an Amazon wish list where people can purchase products for your teacher yes. kits. Um, yes. What else? What else? I guess, is there there are time options, too? You need people to help with, like, what, social media, that kind of stuff? I'm, I'm talking yes. instead of letting you talk. You tell me, Liz. No, no, that's great. <laughs> that's great. You're, you're, exactly, you're exactly right on. So the biggest thing that we need, there's two things that we really need. One mm-hmm. is we need exposure. No one knows about Peace Through Music International. And that's because I've spent, because, because I'm the executive director, and I'm not a very good executive director. <laughs> um, I, I spend all my energy and my time teaching the kids, right? And sure, yeah. even when I'm in America now, I'm spending all my time, you On know, trying to teach them online and, yeah. and be in touch with them and stuff. And so I have not been able to do the job that we need. We need, we need a PR person. We need people that want to try to get the word out, you know? Yeah. Um, Hold local fundraisers, even even if you don't raise much money, just to tell people about us. You know, yeah. Um, we need um, we need social media help. We need um, people that want to you know run a really great Instagram or Facebook or mm-hmm. um, there there are so many great examples out there, and w- I I will try doing them, and then I'll get completely swamped with work and not able to keep it going. Um, yeah, I, I see here on, we on your website, need... you have a list for people who need to volunteer or how to volunteer your time. And I see you have grant writers listed there. And I do know that oh, amongst pipe yes. bands, most pipe bands are nonprofit organizations. So most of us have at least somebody in the band who's at least kind of written a grant before. <laughs> so we maybe have some, that... we maybe have a pool of people here. Yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing because, you know, that's been the hardest thing for us because, I think I keep saying the hardest thing, but anyway, there are a lot of hardest hardest things I can think of right now. (laughs) There's a lot of hardest things and getting grants has been really hard for us because when people hear that we're a music program, they think, well, we need music in America, in our schools. Um, What they don't realize is that we're, we're um, the only thing that these kids have. And that's why we changed our name to Peace Through Music International because because our goal is helping these kids to become peacemakers, right? right? Yes. And yeah. um, music is, is the way that we do it, but it, it's really hard to find grants 
that uh, that we qualify for. Mm-hmm. So even more than grant writers, we need grant grant researchers. Yeah, to, to find, find them. Yeah. To find them, and because we spend hours and hours trying to find grants we qualify for, and after spending two weeks working on something, we find out that for some reason we don't qualify. Yeah, you know, or um, so that's our biggest need. If anyone would want to do that. Also, if anyone sews, we, um, we make our own teacher bags mm. and we buy the material because uh, it needs to be sort of waterproof and super lightweight because I have to carry them in, in, uh, in suitcases. So we have a woman who's made, she used to make all of them for us and now she directs others in how to make them. She's made a really great video on how to make them mm. and, uh, and she'll mail you the material. So all you have to do is the sewing. But it's, it's complex. You have to be good at sewing. But mm. we really need people that want to do that for us. Um, yeah, we, we need a lot of help. And, and what's great is that every time somebody helps us, they make us better. You yeah. know, it's, we're, we're all about volunteers. That's who we are. And I, is it most, I mean, I think probably with most charities, really like the easiest, maybe best way to help is often cash, just because then the charity could use the cash yeah. as they, as they need yeah. it. Um, so like, yes. I'd imagine like I'm looking, I'm looking around at my own whistles, like, okay, I probably won't mail you my used whistles, but I could send money <laughs> yes, to you don't. to purchase some new whistles. That would be better, right? <laughs> yes. And, and the reason for that is because First of all, we don't ever give the kids used things. You're right, yeah. Um, because if they're only going to get one nice thing Let's until they're nice, like right? 25, yeah. I'm going to make it nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also because we want them, uh, we, we can buy our, our penny whistles at a really steep discount. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a, a penny whistle and you spend $15 on it, we can buy it for maybe three. And then by the time we get it to the country, it might cost us six. But if you mail one to me, then I'm still going to have to pay to get it to the country. Right. And so it, it doesn't do us any good. Whereas I can donate, I mean, I can purchase a hundred penny whistles mm-hmm. for, a, you know, not very much money. Right. And, and like I said, they're good quality. Um, our, my, one of my dreams, I don't know if you have anybody listening that would have a way to do this, but one of our dreams is to uh, develop our own whistle mm. and then sell it only to raise money for the foundation. Oh, no sure, profit yeah. for any person, but have it go. Although I suppose if somebody wanted to take this on and get some money, but have some of it go towards us, we'd be happy with that too. Right. But, um, but that's been a dream forever, you know, have one that has our cool logo on it or something. Right. And, uh, people can buy a tin whistle and have that be, um, I mean, how cool would that be? Yeah, right? I'm just I'm just spitballing, but I could imagine even like an established manufacturer just doing like a piece through music edition, right? That like has the lo- the yes. logo on it, and it's like, all right, you know, the profits from this whistle or a portion of them goes to the charity. So then somebody like me who has <laughs> instrument acquisition disease and I can't help buying more instruments all the time would be able to go, oh, well, if I'm going to buy a whistle anyway, I'll buy that one and do some good at the same time. Exactly. That's that's what we really want. And I have not even thought about contacting the manufacturers who are already making them. That is such a great idea. Hey, I'm gonna look do at that. me coming up with that ideas. That is such a great <laughs> idea. I know. Thank you for that. And and if anyone listening has a connection to help with this too, that would be awesome. So that's the that thing. So I'll, I'll make sure that there's a link to your website in the show notes. But great. it's just peacethroughmusicinternational.org. And there is a drop down there. I'm looking at it right now that says get involved. And there you've got ways to give, practicing for peace. Oh, that's a fun program. Is that kind of like, that looks like it's kind of like, um, 
Like when you ask for donations per mile when you're going to do like a walkathon or something. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. That's it's a like cool a walkathon idea. but for music. And uh, and it's really great because you know, you get pledges five yeah. cents a minute or a penny a minute or whatever, you know, a dollar an hour. And then uh, you spend a whole month practicing, and mm-hmm. and part of the kit is the is the calendar that where you write your stuff down, right? And then you collect the donations, and all of that goes to buy instruments. I love this and idea so, for pipe bands. Like we want our pipers to, and drummers to practice anyway. So <laughs> what a great program yes. to motivate us to practice as well. Well, and you know, I was a horrible practicer as a kid. Aren't I, we all? I was <laughs> exactly. And but if I had known that practicing hard for one month would get instruments to a kid in, in another country, I would have totally done that. Mm-hmm. I like that And then idea. hopefully by the end of the month, I would like practicing enough that I'd keep going. you keep doing you know? it, yeah. Yeah, in, in, so in the it's competi- a great com- thing for teachers. In our competitive pipe band community, we kind of have an on-season and an off-season. And often our difficulty uh-huh. is keeping ourselves motivated to keep practicing through the kind of kind of November through March months. And so I'm just imagining mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, well, how about if all pipe bands in the entire world just do this program oh in December and let's see what the heck we can do with that, huh? <laughs> that would be so Wouldn't amazing. Be cool? Wow. What, what else that do you have on this so involved amazing. thing? There's the Amazon wish list. Oh, what about the college clubs? Is that a thing that, that happens very often? Well, not... we used to have college clubs. We haven't since, uh, since before COVID, mm. but we used to. I used to... Um, speak at a lot of universities, and I still would love to do that, but it all stopped during COVID. Gotcha. Um, I'd like go in and speak to either like all the music education majors or all the music majors or the psychology majors or the mm-hmm. education majors or just the university. Yeah. Um, and so I would go and speak, and then um, then the kids would decide to start a club at the school, mm. and that was really neat. And we'd love to see that happen again because we actually even had like a a student board of kids from different universities um, that would meet together to talk about things that they could do to help Mm. the programs. Gotcha, gotcha. We even had some groups from universities that came to Kosovo um, to do, Mm. like, through their university, and that was really a neat neat thing. Yeah, and I see there, it looks like there are even a few local programs here in the U.S., in Utah and Arizona, which is where you and I are, where I guess these are for refugees, huh, when when refugees come in to... Help them yes. I see. And our Utah program is just wrapping up now, but our Arizona program started during COVID. I had to be home, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a call that, that, that we were bringing all these Afghan refugees into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And would I bring my music program to them? And I said, yes, absolutely. So I started, it was fantastic because I got to do this the whole time during COVID. Um, and so now we know this this Afghan refugee community, and, and through that, we've gotten to know other refugee communities. So we teach ukulele for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, this is super cool, Liz. I don't mean at all to cut you off, so still feel free to no. talk some more after, but I'm just saying that oh, I'll, I'll have wait, links. I have another idea. Yeah, tell me. I have another idea, Any idea, too. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> if someone wanted to, somebody in whatever country that they're in, if they wanted to start a program... Um, like if somebody in, in America lives in a place and they know that there are refugees there mm-hmm. and they would like to start a music program for the refugees, I'll, I'll teach you how to teach and we'll give you the instruments, we'll give you anything you need. You just mm. have to 
make the contacts yourself and, you know, find the group that you're going to teach, that kind of thing. It, um, am I right in thinking that, like, I'm looking at the Utah program description right now. It looks like it, it would function kind of in a similar way where, like, an adult like me, for example, would, would work like a coordinator and then would maybe try to recruit uh, teenagers to be instructors and and kind of run the program that way and invite the the refugee families to come maybe find a school or a library that could give us a room, that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't have to have teenagers, but of course, as we said before, teenagers yeah. are cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, that's, that's exactly, exactly it. And, and it, the hardest part is that you really have to have adults. Teenagers would keep this thing going forever, but you have to have, um, adults that will agree to be in charge. Of course, there's um, questions of liability and all kinds of stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. all of that stuff. So in the U.S., it's a lot harder to set those kind of things up right. um, than it is in other countries. But yeah, um, we okay. would love that. Any any place in the U.S. that could see a need, and it could be it could be um, a, a homeless center. It could be. I mean, oh, there's sure, so yeah. many different things that this would be great for. Um, during COVID. Uh, when it first hit, and we all thought it was going to last a couple of months, I put a post up on Facebook saying, hey, is anybody else going crazy? If you want, I'll teach you ukulele. And so <laughs> my friends signed up, and I started teaching ukulele on Zoom. And then um, a friend of a friend contacted me and said, I'm a therapist for nurses, and the nurses I'm working with are dealing with so much trauma from oh, COVID sure. that it's not that different from uh, post-war trauma. Yeah. Is there any way that you would consider doing a class for them? So we ran programs for healthcare workers the whole time during COVID. And then we were asked to add school teachers. We added the school teachers. And what's really great is that now they have taken over the programs and they're teaching themselves and each other. That's super cool. So my, yeah. my, my understanding of the program, uh, I didn't even realize I had blinders up as to just how applicable it could be to, for how many people. It's, um, it's exciting how expansive it can be for, for more and more groups of people. I wonder... It's pretty exciting. Liz, I may be... I may be I've been thinking maybe too much. Uh, maybe I'm too much inside of my head about like, what my actual motivations are for why I do certain things. I've maybe been uh, mm -hmm. navel-gazing a little too much about it. But just, like, why, <laughs> why do I seem to, like, turn everything into being about me? I'm not sure why, you know. But, like, to some degree, I just I can't help thinking about this as we've been talking about how, like, I, I, I don't mind saying out loud that I, I go through bouts of, of depression, which, like, it's, it's a funny thing, you know. It's a weird thing that, um, especially on the tales of having talked about how difficult some people's lives are, you know, just you and I talking about that yeah. in the last few minutes, that I can never feel so down, you know. But it's also real, oh, you know. Oh, it's not so relative. I, yeah, yeah, it's real. It, it's a real thing. And, and like, I feel like I don't know what this is that, like, you know, like, for, for me, in my, within the realm of my own personal experience, like, there's not a hole deeper than the one that seems to, that I seem to carry around in my own heart and head that I can climb into sometimes, and it's real hard to get out of, you know, it just makes even lifting my uh -huh. arms difficult, you know, just everything yeah. is so hard. But there's, there's something, there's something here where even just hearing your story, even just imagining it's, I don't want it to, maybe it is this, this is what I mean about being maybe too much in my head about it. I don't want the case to be, though maybe it is this case, that being aware of other people's suffering somehow makes me not worry so much about my own. Because that sounds kind of like, 
oh, well, at least I'm not as bad off saying. as so-and-so. You know, that doesn't, that's right. not very noble. That's not what I want it to be. Maybe that is it. But, but yeah. I, there's something about like, it makes it so I can't think about myself anymore. Like my, my, mm-hmm. my mind is so much occupied in other people that it feels almost like that pulls me out of that hole, you know, like, so I'm just, I guess what well, I'm getting at Liz is. I actually think that that's why our program for the teenagers work. Mm. I mean, you never think about yourself more than when you're a teenager. That's when you're figuring yeah, out what kind true. of person yeah. you're going to be. Yeah. And these teenagers use all of their spare time. I mean, all of their spare time practicing and learning to teach and teaching these kids. Focused on And the it kids, changes their whole life. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to ever make light of depression um, because I think this world's a hard world to live in. And if you want to know what's going on in the world, it's even harder. Um, And, you know, for me, it's been a fight my whole, you know, time since doing this. Matter of fact, about three years in, I got to where I couldn't even say the word Kosovo without crying. I'm sure. And uh, I was home for one of my three-month things, and and I saw a friend at church, and she said, how is it going? And, of course, I had to talk about Kosovo. I start crying, and she said you're brimming. And I said, she's a therapist. Mm. I said, what's that? She said, you've got, said, even when you're not crying, you've got tears right there, you know, mm, behind just your ready eyes. To go. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she said, she said, you probably don't sleep, do you? And I said, no. And she said, cause every night you're trying to rewrite your history and make things better mm. than, than it was. Because when I was in the country, I was able to stay super busy, but then I'd come back to America and have electricity and safe water and things. And I would feel horrible. Oh, is that like a mini version of that thing where like now you're safe, the emotional side of it or the psychological side of what you're going through? Absolutely. Absolutely. Plus, but I'd also always told myself, you can't, you can't show this emotion in front of the people when they're telling you how bad their life is. The last thing they need is for you to break down in tears and and feel sorry for them. Mm. That is not at that time, not when they're still trying to live through it. Yeah. You know, um, you want to be helping them, not, not having them try to comfort you because you feel bad about what they're going through. Yeah. Um, but it got to the point where that, that third or fourth year, I started crying in Kosovo. Luckily, it wasn't in front of refugees. It was just because somebody did something really nice to me, and I started crying. Yeah. So then I went home and was talking to this friend, and she said, you need to go see somebody and, and do something about this because you are not going to be able to continue this work if you don't. I won't be so I went to my doctor. Yeah, I got on, uh, what do I take? I take Prozac. Mm. And honestly, you know, I went to Uganda uh, just a few years later. I could not have gone to Uganda if I had not already been on Prozac because Mm -hmm. this stuff is just really hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. And you can't do this work without loving the people. And you can't love the people without hurting. Yeah, that would come from loving them, yeah. I'm a big fan of seeing your doctor if you need something and, and how it helps. It doesn't cut off your emotions. I still feel it and all of those things. And I still, I still have to fight getting depressed sometimes when I just feel like I can't, I can't do something that I know needs to be done to help people. Yeah. But, but being busy is what has made the biggest difference in my life. Mm. Um, when I was living in L.A., writing music full-time, I got to the point where I couldn't watch the news because it was so upsetting. This was in the 90s, and uh, things weren't nearly as bad as they are now. Yeah. And if I watched the news, I I couldn't write. There was no, nothing in me that could write music, so I had to stop watching the news. Mm. But then I started doing this, 
And now I love the news. Hmm. I can read the news. I can watch the news. don't really like watching it. But yeah. I love reading it, listening to NPR. Hmm. Um, because I feel like I'm a player now. I'm making a difference. Hmm. So all of that that I just said is to say, I think that with depression, if you need meds, you should get meds because I think that can make a huge difference. Yeah. And then I also think that doing something that you know is making a difference can absolutely change your life. And I also believe that all of us want that. Yeah. I think that there's a part of all of us that want to do that. And, and it's a matter of finding what the right thing is for you. You know, for me, it's going to other countries and do this stuff. Thank heavens for our lawyer. It's staying in America and being a lawyer for free for our organization. Yeah, Same right. thing for our accountants, you know, like everybody, everyone can do things. Um, every neighborhood needs help. Every child needs help. Um, so... People can get involved with us and help us, and that's the only reason that we're still here. It's mm -hmm. because of all the amazing people that help us. But you can also do other things. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. That's, but I mean, we would love for you to get involved with us. We would love it. Oh, and I and the, the, I, I the intend to. The first time we to, got Liz. your first email, <laughs> I know. The first time we got your email, we were like, "Oh my gosh, this guy is so great!" Ah, there we go. That's <laughs> and that's the boost I'm looking for. Well, that but that's the thing, oh, Liz. Is like that, that's where I question like my my motivation for doing something because like I can't help but as I'm listening to you talk and just thinking about things that could be done I can't help having this part of my brain that's going this could be good for me right this I can see how this will be useful to me to stay you know to pull myself out of that hole when it when I fall down inside of it you know what I mean it's like and then it's like okay, now wait so a minute me... what's my motivation am I here to help kids or am I just here to <laughs> medicate myself you know what I mean <laughs> okay but listen listen to this the helping will always be harder than you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And if and if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and we have had volunteers that have done stuff for the wrong reasons, you always quit. Mm -hmm. Whenever anybody comes in and wants to do it, not really for the right reasons, but because it'll help them professionally or whatever. Not that that's a bad thing. We could use help from everybody. Yeah, doing good is but, doing good, right? So take yeah, it all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, they don't last. Yeah. So... It's going to be harder than maybe it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that, I think that like, makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Like, if you really get involved, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Like, on the level that I think you want to get involved. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, um, like, for me, it's totally worth it. Like, my life is amazing. Uh, it's Ever since I started doing this, my life has been amazing. Um, I absolutely love my life and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's been really hard. Yeah. It's been really hard. And if I, if I was doing it for any other reason, there's no way I would have stuck what, it wouldn't out. Wouldn't have made it this far, right? Yeah. Well, and of course, but if, I don't think it's a bad thing to want to do it because you know, it'll make you feel better. Do you know what I mean? Cause sure. that's just what happens. Yeah. It's just a natural consequence. And, and like it, doing something bad makes you feel bad. Right, and doing something good will make you feel good, right? 
But yeah. it, but it does seem like um, if if somebody like me wants to try helping, and if we have to eventually fall back to I don't know, just making a monthly donation of five dollars, <laughs> like we could do that, and it still makes a pretty big and impact. We'll still be good, so, so grateful for that <laughs> <Yeah>. five dollars, absolutely. <laughs> right. And and you know what? We also have people that have different times in their lives, and like so for a couple of years, they could do all kinds of PR for us and stuff. And then, well, actually, we've never had anybody that could really do that, but but they can do. <laughs> something for us for yeah. a couple of years yeah and then their life changes and they can't yeah but they still they still donate you know yeah. so everything helps um every single thing helps every five dollars a month helps every um or one-time donation or anything somebody can do right yeah i guess prayer I, you know we had a girl who held a yard sale in our early years mm. she held a two-day yard sale and she raised enough money in that two-day yard sale to buy all of our instruments for that year. Wow, that's amazing. As a teenager. Yeah, she was 15. Now, now Liz, she went around to a bunch of people, gathered stuff, and then held this yard sale and bought all of our instruments for a year. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an amazing thing for a 15-year-old kid to do. I mean, for anybody mm-hmm. to do, but that, that's amazing. Yeah, the, uh, the yard sale. I, I saw just, was it just today or yesterday, that an eBay, um, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, auction started to auction. raise funds? Yes. So that's, yes. that's specifically for the Ukrainian program, right? Yes, Do you want right. to maybe tell me about that um, kind of, because that feels like that must be kind of the immediate or new need. And so do you want to maybe that talk is, a little bit that's about the, that? Yes, that's our, that's our biggest need right now. So um, last year, when the war started in Ukraine, of course, we said we got to go and help. Mm-hmm. And so we started researching things. But, of course, we'd also already made our year budget. Right. And no money did we have for another trip to another country. You didn't, <laughs> so didn't it plan was, ahead for another war yeah, breaking out. <laughs> for another war. Yeah. Um, but but we were able to do it. And I went, and, excuse me. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no problem. So, so um, I found a group... Uh, in Poland that is actually a cell phone company who had turned a, um, a training center into a refugee camp. Mm. So uh, every family got a room. This, this was the nicest camp I've ever been in. Mm. Every family got a room that was like a hotel room. Not, not a nice hotel room. It was like a youth hostel kind of hotel room. Mm-hmm. But it had a private bathroom and it had beds. Um, and, um, and then they would eat meals together. And so I contacted them, and and they said, yes, we absolutely want you to come. And they even uh, let me live there that Mm. summer, which was amazing because they had a spare room. And, of course, I said, if anyone comes, you take my room away. Of course. You know, because I don't want to take anyone's place. But the town that it was in was super expensive, and Mm. I wouldn't have been able to uh, stay very long if I'd had to pay nightly for for lodging. So anyway, so so I lived with the refugees, which was also the first time I've ever done that, and that was an amazing experience. I ate with them, lived with them, you know, talked with them, hung out with them. It was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And so we ran uh, like two and a half months uh, summer camp basically, which was like a full-time music camp. We started at nine in the morning. We ended at five in the evening, except some nights we went till eight in the evening and it was phenomenal. By the end of the summer, we were teaching every kid in that, in that camp, the little kids, the, the normal age kids, the teenagers, Mm -hmm. and then a lot of the women. Uh, And what happened in the Afghan program is that, um, the women, I started noticing that the women didn't really have anything to do when they were here in Arizona. Mm. 
And so I offered them a class and they started learning ukulele and they ended up becoming my biggest group of the Afghans. Mm. And so that's what we're trying to continue is that program for the Afghan mm. women. So I wanted to offer this for the women, um, the women living in this Polish refugee camp. And at first, none of them wanted to join. They're like, you know, there were no men. Well, there was, there was, there were two older men, but the men that were fighting age were not allowed to leave Ukraine. So these right. were all women yeah. with children living in this camp. And, uh, and when I say camp, it's just like a big building. Um, but they were, but they were, everyone got a private room. So it was, like I said, quite nice for a refugee camp. I'm, I'm kind of clicking um, around the website while we talk. And I think I found some photos from this, from the Ukrainian class. Oh, good. Yeah. So, um, Sorry, I threw you off with that. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. So anyway, we were able to run that program for not very much money, which was really great because I was able to live with them. So now that camp is shut down, Mm. and uh, the kids that were there have been moved to another camp. And so I want to – that's where we're trying to go is back to where those same kids are plus a whole lot more kids. Gotcha. Um, And so we're trying to raise funding now because I'll have to rent an apartment uh, to do that. Mm and pay for food and things. So that's going to be more expensive. And we might, we're going to try to actually get two different camps to teach this summer. And so then I'll need a vehicle as well. Well, so it's going to cost more. But um, one thing about us is we never waste money. It all, it all, uh, it all goes to, you know, making things work for as little as possible Mm -hmm. and uh, reaching as many kids as possible. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the kids get out of school at the end of June. And so that's when we want to start this program. And, uh, and Our, what's one of the really exciting things is that one of the Yazidi refugees that I taught in Greece, who now is a refugee living in Germany, is going to try to join me in Poland and help me teach because she's been teaching, um, she's been teaching Yazidi refugees in Iraq online. It's all so <laughs> convoluted, but, yeah. but um, we were able to get these refugees in Iraq ukuleles yeah, <laughs> and so this refugee in Germany is yeah. able to teach them every week online, and so now she's going to try to come to Poland and teach side to by Poland side. To Poland to teach the summer. Ukrainian kids, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean that is so convoluted, it's, it's so but exciting. it's really cool. It's convoluted in the coolest possible way. This like exactly. again, this like this it's, exchange of like people from different places with different music and be online. Online, that's that's awesome when that's an option, of course. But then to travel and do it in person as well, and that's super cool. Well, and there's also. A difference between, so first time I went to Uganda, I went with, with Burham, who'd been through the war in Kosovo. So we met with this woman who was going to help us get a program going. And she told us her story. And, and like always, I just said, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, whatever you say in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But Burham said, oh, that happened to me and my family too. And this uh, and this and this. And it was a completely different conversation. Yeah, that's different. Because he had been through it. Yeah. So... Having someone who's actually been through a war, helping somebody who's been through a war is just such a different experience. And Mm so I'm really excited about that. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well then, Liz, I will, like I say, I'll put links to the website in the show notes. I'm going to try to shift my release schedule so that this episode goes out really soon. Um, And then if anybody who hears it is interested in getting involved, hop on the website. And if you have other questions... Um, like the show, the podcast contact info is listed there. It's all over the place all the time. And I'll be happy to turn people toward the right place. If, if you're unsure where to navigate to on the website or anything like that. And, uh, 
I think we're I think we're solid, right. Liz. Unless did you have any sort of like uh, parting words that you wanted to share? Or? No, no pressure, of course. Just, um, just I can. The one thing I would like to share is just that, and I hope this is sort of I hope that I can share this more in the world. Is that all of us have something to give, and for some people it's money, for some people it's time, but we all have something to give that's unique to us, and. If we look inside ourselves and look around us, we'll find it. We'll be led to it. And we all can change the world. And people living in this country are so blessed. We are so rich compared to most of the world. And we have an obligation to help these places that, that have people that through no fault of their own we're born into situations so different from ours. And we can all make a difference. And nothing is too small. Everything makes a difference. Every giving act. <laughs>